0: Episode 36 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. On this mic is your co-host Russ, and over there on that mic is... Mike. Is
1: Mike. Let's not get confused that Mike is on this mic, and Russ is on that microphone, shall we say.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and to make things more confusing, they're the same mikes at least the same model mics. yeah there,
1: there there is a beastie boys tune called uh, mike on the mike by the way but uh oh, <laughs> so beastie nice. boys it's not like it's a new pun or anything <laughs> no i don't know well russ i um this week i come to you whiskeyless or bourbonless I'm, i am i uh, am drinking ginger lemon tea I haven't been feeling too well this weekend. I'm better now. I'm kind of feeling over, a little overheated. But I got a bad case of the sniffles over the weekend and pretty much slept it all away. But I did manage to hear all the music and make my oh, notes. Good. And I'm all well. I'm going to make up for it huh? tonight I listen I've to a lot more. But but I, I think I slept through a lot of the stuff that I uh, listened to on my own.
0: I've already it's had a off. bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, very nice. You're ready to couple go. Um, Knob Creek shots, uh, yep. for you. Yeah, so you're going to have
1: to do the uh, drunken commentary for me. I'm going to have to be sober and, uh, you know, not obnoxious. <laughs> okay. Well, you, what, What's what's the opposite of obnoxious? I don't know because I've never been it.
0: <laughs> we can work on the, the sober commentary and then I will uh, All right. relieve myself of re- responsibility for making anything lucid uh, in okay. terms of commentary this week. And uh, then next week, we'll bring the balance back to normal. Yeah, let's Um, hope so. Yeah. So this is... um, I don't know what happened to me here. Episode 36. Mm. Um, Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, you just uh, didn't get enough of this gorgeous fall weather we're having here.
1: Well, I was Uh, out in it, actually, because I I was out today and yesterday. It was really beautiful. But I still made sure I kind of wore my neck gaiter out there. (laughs) <laughs> so that I could keep my neck warm, I didn't put, I didn't bring a scarf out yet, but uh, yeah, kept my neck covered. Didn't want to get catch the make anything worse. But it was a nice day, really beautiful.
0: A couple of weeks before we get cold, I think uh, it's really nice, and maybe yeah. next next week or so the leaves will be at their autumn peak of colors. Um, so yeah, it's a good time to put the headphones on and go for a walk with the music uh, out there. So. Uh, There's a lot of stuff to listen to this fall. Uh, Before we get into this week's selections, I want to remind our listeners that uh, in our episode description, you'll find links for Spotify and Apple Music to all the music that we'll discuss. Also at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place on Deezer, uh, our preferred streaming platform, where you can also follow us at uh, username adult music podcast. We're on Deezer. Uh, We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, uh, tons of other small ones. Uh, So wherever you listen to us, we appreciate it. But the one place episode playlist is only on Deezer. Uh, if you can't see the full description or find the links on whatever platform or app you're listening to us on, uh, please come over and check us out on our host site, Podbean, where the links are easy to see and you can follow them with one click. Uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Take a moment, give us a ranking, uh, write a review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. Helps us get new listeners, so we'd appreciate that. If you have any questions or comments or anything you want to contact us directly with, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And we'd be happy to hear from you, and we will respond. Yes,
1: we will. All right, now, just to begin tonight, we have to... uh open up with a brief uh, bit of uh, musical necrology. There were two big deaths in the music, uh, in classical and jazz this week, both. One of each we had, first of all, um, the Brazilian pianist uh, Nelson Freire uh, died at age 77. Um, He he was pals with Martha Argerich, I know that, and he has he made a gramophone award-winning uh, recording of the Brahms piano concertos. That is my number one pick. Although I like the Stephen Hough one on Hyperion too. So I guess the two of those. But uh, if you're going if you want to sample his music, I recommend the uh, Brahms piano concertos uh, with the Gewandhaus Orchestra uh, conducted by Ricardo Chailly. They're really spectacular.
0: Right, his list as far nice as too. as
1: far as more recent recordings go, 21st century recordings. Let me say there are some mm. great old ones too.
0: I think right. I was list one
1: too. Um, no, I don't have that. I have a few others, like I have a Debussy and a Chopin, and I, they're okay. I mean, I, there are mm-hmm. others that I like more, but this one was really great. Right. And, and also, do uh, you want to do the jazz? Yeah,
0: seventy-seven. Yeah, the uh, same age. Seventy-seven
1: seems to be the new twenty-seven.
0: The new twenty-seven.
1: Because rock stars always die at twenty-seven. looks like, yeah. uh, you know, these yeah, guys the all great, died at seventy-seven. Um,
0: jazz guitarist Pat Martino.
1: Died this week, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, who, um, yeah, his, what, I believe he had, was it a stroke that he had or an aneurysm or uh, something oh, like that, that? I didn't read it. I just yeah, read that Yeah, that had, um, he died. you know, oh, you mean that kind of made him lose his memory? Yeah, you mean? Yeah. That set him back in his career, but he overcame that and yeah. uh, came back and had a resurgence um
1: he overcame is an understatement he relearned how yeah, to play his instrument from nothing it's unbelievable yeah. really yeah. and he and became it, a pro again
0: yeah it gave him a new perspective and approach to the instrument and music uh so yeah. he had a whole second career after that um so two big losses yeah in the musical yeah role.
1: does he have any uh new records coming out that you know of
0: anything that's in the can or mm, not that I've seen no okay. um but I, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of his classic stuff, and I still find things in the uh, used bin that I didn't know. Actually, you know, in Japan, with the uh, used reused record stores, have uh, more records and CDs than you'll find in the new selection. But you also uh, come up with things you'll find in there that are not available on streaming or anywhere else things that have sort of fallen to the wayside. So I've picked up a few of his over the years um, that are uh, well worth having. So if you can find any Pat Martino, uh, you can find an awesome guitarist, uh, great technical ability, uh, interesting concept, uh, original mm-hmm. kind of guitar playing, and often had a lot of uh, really good uh, sidemen with him too. So that'll be right. a big loss to the jazz world as well.
1: Yeah, I have. His, I think I have his, his previous two, re- or two records. He, One was his, and the other one he played on um, as a sideman. So I think I have the most recent one he did. Mm. I can't remember the name of it off well, the top of my head, though. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so Sad Week for um, fans of both classical and jazz. All right. Anyway, shall we, oh boy, should we just go on into the recordings? I feel like we're just leaping into this um, really Let's quickly. Let's jump in. Let's jump in. Our first classical recording for the week is um, Orchestra Works Volume 3. We're up to Volume 3 in the Paul Ranitzky series. This is um, the Czech Chamber Philharmonic Orchestra. Pardubice. I hope I said that right. I should really... I think that's know, right. We do these so often, I still can't see his name. Marek Stilek is the... Um, uh, was still C- yeah Stilitz. okay yeah, I, think I should I could listen to that yeah. interview again they, they tell us how to yeah to talk about it, is the uh, conductor and um the this is um the third um the third volume of uh symphonies and uh other orchestra works shorter orchestra works by uh Paul Ranitzky, the a composer that uh from around um Mozart Beethoven Haydn's era the so the classical era really um and um that um the scholar Daniel Bernhardson told us a lot about and we're we're sort of in contact with him as well. Um this by the way, the Ranitsky discovery, the when we did volume one way back in the spring, this was uh, Russ's pick. I didn't find this on my own, so I'm I gotta say this has really turned into quite a uh quite a project that I've gotten interested in myself.
0: Yeah, as, that was as, just uh, as it came on. You know, looking at new things that have been coming out and although, you know, Mike usually picks the classical yeah. and I pick the jazz just out of the way we've set things up. It doesn't mean we're not looking at, you know, things on yeah. our own in other areas and we talk about that. And I but I had just happened to see this uh in the
1: uh new yeah, classical listings. Yeah, we've fallen into a pattern now where I choose the classical, you choose the jazz. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, no, but no. it's just so we're working. Yeah. And it's just easier because we're so aware yeah, but we you know, of what's we, coming out in our our various areas of interests. So, we pass you know, uh,
0: you know ideas past each other all the time, and then I said, "Well, have you ever heard of this?" And you were like, "No," and I was like, "Neither have I." But you know, uh, check this out. And so we both thought it was uh, interesting. And then when we uh, yeah. selected volume one, and then uh, Daniel contacted us, uh, and it started the ball rolling uh, with. Yeah. Uh, are learning about uh, Rynitsky from you know, Daniel's historical research, and then if you haven't yeah. listened to it, uh, please do check out. Uh, that will be our interview number three, uh, Renitsky yours as Daniel yes. signs off. And uh, Daniel was kind enough to bring and in. And uh, is
1: on that too. The Merrick, conductor yeah, was also uh,
0: to get the yeah. conductor's insight. And uh, so we've done volume one and two. And now we've got volume three, and I have to say. Maybe I like this one best of all of yeah, the orchestra I definitely works. do.
1: Absolutely. Um this one I had kind of complained about a little bit of um oh let's say just not not unspirited sort of playing in some of the earlier uh, recordings but uh, there's no such uh issue here. These are all really um um fantastic out of the gate very lively and really good playing all the way through Um let's get to let's go through the tracks here yeah. the first one to, is called yeah
0: I have to say too that now that we're on volume 3 I, I think um, you know in my own mind and sort of concept framing I have a much better you know picture of Ronitsky's style yeah uh, me too and the sort of mm-hmm. things he does after I've listened to all of these now and uh, right. so I'm, I'm getting sort of a a framework and expectation uh, in his compositional style uh you know th- so th- that's really great that i've got a new uh, yeah incidentally idea of a composer apparently, in my head yeah
1: apparently our our um, understanding of his uh, style is going to widen even further because um daniel informs us that um there are some more CDs on the way possibly next spring we don't know but they'll be about uh, consisting of Ranisky's stage works music from his uh, stage works which sounds interesting but I want to say I want to hear uh, more of the symphonies there are more of them There's apparently. a of them yeah, so. yeah and uh, I think this uh, symphony series should keep going it really seems to be taking off it really seems to have hit its stride with this third release because uh, I really feel like the orchestra's really in it now they're really right. you know they're really kind of getting in and are interested in in yeah. what they're they're playing this is These a are on pretty, the uh
0: the nexus label we should the say, nexus too. label yeah. yeah
1: yes okay i wanted to say first of all um i, I actually had the cd this is the first time i had the cd when i was listening to it so because we waited a bit, this actually came out about a, about a month ago so um i had the cd and um was looking through the pictures and there's a there's a profile of Ranitsky. Wanted to get an uh, idea of what he looked like, and I gotta say, he was a uh, pretty good looking guy. He's a mm. he's a nice profile in his uh, his ruffled shirt and all of that. So I bet he uh, I bet he uh, wowed the ladies as well as the um, the music lovers of his time. I hope so. we'll, we'll have to ask Daniel about that. You know what? Yeah, anyway. we about that. Yeah. Okay. All right. The first track is, uh, Mitgefühl, which, uh, means compassion. It's an overture to, um, compose in 1804. So Mozart is long dead by this point. Um, uh, Haydn is still alive and Beethoven is really doing his, um, his moonlight sonata. And he just started work on the fifth symphony, which wouldn't see the light of day until 1808. Um, so this, this is the period we're talking about. um, Mitgefühl is a one-act Liederspiel, or a song play, okay? Um, That's what it means in English. Um, In a a Liederspiel, I'm I'm drawing from Daniel's notes here, Um, well-known existing lyrics or poems are set to new music and inserted into a spoken play, Uh, usually a simple rural plot. That's that's from Wikipedia. Um, So... It's not like Mozart's magic flute, where all the, um, which, which is, a, I think, uh, I think there's a word for that too. It's a, a singspiel, I think. Um, but that's all original text. In a, in a Liedespiel, the songs are all from well known lyrics that already exist. So it's like somebody, um, you can imagine if you're an American, if you know that uh, poem, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, like somebody put that in an opera somewhere. <laughs> so it's things like that. They would be familiar. The songs would be familiar. The words would be familiar to the audience of the time. Okay, so we're only hearing the overture here, um, but let's, let's go through the story a little bit. The story in this uh, in this Liederspiel is about two young lovers, Nicolas and Marie, whose fathers are different. Marie's father... Jacob is a kind and generous yeah, good for her huh she she scored big there yeah. while Niklas's father kvass <laughs> is heartless and greedy i can't help but notice this guy's name kvass q u a a s sounds like Kvotsch, which is a German word for like an idiot or somebody like that if somebody's, you know. I, I wonder if that sounded like is, is intentional here. I don't know. I bet we'll hear from mm. Daniel about that. <laughs> I'd like to know. Anyway, he sounds like the uh, he's the guy that needs his mind changed in the story, and that happens at the end. He's taught to feel compassion for his fellow man by the end and is therefore no longer a Kvatch. I wonder if he changes his name. Anyway, the let's get to the music. The Overture. Uh, it starts with a slow introduction, very lots of pathos. With and interesting then,
0: modulations there, too. They're yeah. Kind of
1: yeah there are, yeah. right. especially for the era. I mean, I, you heard a bit of, of it in Mozart, but um, mm. it's pretty adventurous, I have to say. Okay, a sprightly theme comes in the, the main section. You always know when the main section starts in these types of works because then the, they... The whole feel suddenly changes now you're, now suddenly you're dancing along uh, with accented syncopations very interesting so I think uh either he was listening to his Beethoven or Beethoven was listening to him Beethoven uses a lot of accented syncopations um, Sforzati as in as you we'd call them in the score um I didn't actually you actually sent me copies of the score which I didn't look at before I talked about this but um
0: you need a big screen to. Go yeah, through I imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Daniel sent us copies of the score. <laughs> I only have this much time in the weekday. Yeah. Okay, okay, and that opens the fast main section. Um, but the sprightly theme ends, and the true primary subject is stated by the low strings and then repeated by the woodwinds. It's kind of weird. You don't hear that main theme right away in the in the um, in the main part of the uh, Mm -hmm. movement uh it's a seven note motif it's pretty easy to identify it's from the final it kind of it's um the note values are the same so it's kind of this um just Yeah, it's a real catchy hook i think granitsky would have been a
0: great like pop song writer you know if he had born in the 20th century because it really it grabs you and then he's really skillful at you know passing that around and uh really it's like an earworm in this one it gets in your head yeah
1: yeah, it comes in the final chorus of the opera, by the way, as um, Daniel um, let tells us in his notes. And it's a setting of G.A. Berger's poem Das Lied vom Braven. Von Braven Mann. Sorry, <laughs> I missed the last word there. Song of the Good Man. Okay, and uh, so I guess what that means is that the good man dominates, because this gets all the attention in the, the um, overture. And uh, this is put to extensive use in this work. All right, there's a really subtle, nice crescendo as the strings wind up to the emphatic chords in the opening of the overture. I really liked that. Um, They get a good anguished sense out of the harmony, as you said, which modulates a lot. Okay, the main theme rockets ahead in high spirits. There's nothing like the high spirits of the music of the late 18th century. Is there, is there? They really... um, Really knew how to make you happy. <laughs> At least they yeah, liked to this, make me happy. Um, yeah. and
0: I, I, got a sense. You know, we often talk like. Well, last week we were talking. Uh, C.P.E. Bach is one of our com- favorite composers. Although we right. were sort of thrown for a loop last week, yeah, by the by the particular recording that we particular heard. Particular recording week, yeah. that we heard. It didn't have quite that sort of tongue-in-cheekness to it. But I, I'm getting a sense in uh Renitsky's compositions that he he has these little pearls of uh kind of um the, I don't know if they're humor but they're sort of like pulling the you know the rug out from under you. If, when you listen to this recording when you get at 3 minutes and 17 seconds I I was trying to find which measure or page it is on the score but it didn't but there's this like little harmonic surprise there hmm. uh where it will shift to this other chord uh you know that, that you haven't heard yet and you're only going to hear it once uh, and you know it's uh it's a yeah, great of like, writing when that happens. Yeah.
1: You only hear it once, you're like, Well, oh, what was that? and you wait yeah. you want it to repeat but you don't it's, hear it it's again. It's like in yeah.
0: a you know if you distill it down to a pop song, like songs that have a great bridge but the bridge is never repeated, you only hear it right. once. So you've gotta go back and listen to the whole song to hear it. There's Renitsky has those little kind of nuggets in his uh, compositions that yeah. are just in there and you know, you've got to catch it that one time. And that's going to be it. Um, and so you, you can see inside of all of the other development, uh, once in a while, he has this little kind of, uh, you know, curveball right. that he puts in there. That's uh, really interesting. Yeah. There's going to
1: be an interesting one in the, in the upcoming the symphony that we're going to talk about next, Right. Uh, that I, that I sort of highlighted, um, there's there is okay. In anyway, in this case, there are all sorts of uh, inventive reworkings of the main theme. He's he's an inventive composer. Hmm. Uh, this movement feels good and it should give listeners a smile. So if you're feeling down, you might want to stop the podcast and uh, go listen to it now. Yeah. Then come back, please, because there's more.
0: <laughs> and then
1: come back for the hunt. For the hunt. Yes, that's the next work, the symphony in D major, La Chasse, with The hunt. That's a French name. Hmm. Okay. Published in 1793, so we don't know when it was written, and this is the version with expanded orchestration, which means it has trumpets in it. I think the original Thank one God. didn't. Didn't yeah. <laughs> Russ being a trumpet player, all right? But uh, the original one didn't have it had brass, but it didn't have trumpets. Just and, horns, um, I think. Yeah. What, what? How can you have a hunt without trumpets? That's what I would ask. Mm. Anyway, y- you work with what you got. Anyway. Um okay the reason for that I actually wrote this down here for the private concerts of Ferdinand III of Tuscany exiled in Vienna due to the Napoleonic Wars Renisky added trumpets and for the hunt in the finale uh, a timpanone which is a large kettle drum and we're going to hear that in this um, particular version as well um, so this, this, this is I don't really feel like I need to hear the other one because <laughs> this one sounds like the more interesting it does it's got just more to entice the ear Alright, anyway, the first movement, Allegro Maestoso, uh, brimming with optimism, anticipation, and it starts with one of those, like, upward sort of rolls. Now, if you know the um, Mozart uh, Jupiter Symphony, the way it begins, dun, ta-ran, ta-ran, it starts with one of those sorts of sounds, uh, and then it's off to the races after that. The orchestra is in very fine form here, and they uh, they get a sense of the energy of this music. It's really good. There's a really solid, solid cadence to end the exposition, and then a darker episode in the contrasting development section, reminiscent of Ronitsky's storm depictions, according to Daniel and his notes. Um that part, the, the the storm part, not the I, I said the, the the part before that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like the rain clouds threaten to like wash out the hunt or something. You know, it's like
1: Yeah, and I imagine that Beethoven might have heard this and picked this up for his later Pastoral Symphony, which would also be premiered I think around eighteen oh eight with the mm. fifth symphony. Um the cloudy mood is quickly dispelled by the return of the opening theme in the recapitulation. And uh there's some nice figuration added to the approaches to the cadences. And there's a fantastic and very witty false cadence just inside the seven-minute mark. So when you get past seven minutes, listen, you're going to hear the music heading towards a cadence, and then there's just this weird chord that interrupts it and makes it go off in another direction. It's absolutely fantastic. It really made me sit up on my chair. Uh, the brakes are slammed down for a moment. It's almost like CPE Bach-like, actually. Mm. Uh, and then the music continues on its merry way to the final cadence. It's just this little moment there where the music just stops and then kind of collects itself and then heads to the final cadence. Really great. I really liked this a lot, this movement.
0: That's good. It's got a lot of forward motion, these little mm. kind of pauses that sort of, you know, keep you feeling like you're, you're falling forward in that. And um, then, you know, after that kind of... Uh, threatening storm section there's this kind of uh, these racing triplets that sort of change to this this rocking uh eighth note figure and so that rhythmic variation is you know really interesting too um it, it it keeps satisfying you with all these kind of uh you know varied structures and things as it goes along so it's a really nice movement
1: okay next movement is a menuet it's a stately and it has a rustic trio um you know invoking the countryside um there's a real enthusiasm um in the orchestra playing in this menuet and uh, equaling the energy heard in the first movement. We get to the third movement an adagio, which Daniel describes as idyllic serenade in compound ternary form features woodwind solos and the expanded repeats um. This is a uh, this is me talking now. Very pretty and flowingly played by the orchestra. There's a contrasting middle section which is kind of he he the word stern, I guess. Um, I I actually thought it was more than stern. I thought it was sort of harsh and harrying, mm. sort of. You know, it's kind of. I, I heard it as a little more emotional than that. It wasn't yeah. just serious. Um, the, there's something in, really anxious about it.
0: Yeah, and it stays rather than like modulating or something. It's in the the relative minor. Right. So it, it kind of you know, emphasizes that uh, change of kind of uh, mood there. Um right. but then when yeah. it comes out the um I really like the, the flute and oboe part uh here. Uh, I, I mentioned that as well, yeah. Yeah. It's like they're um yeah, talking to each other. Uh yeah, and in and fact uh, Daniel yeah.
1: writes in the notes that it they evoke the call between two birds.
0: Yeah, it is like that, yeah, yeah. Um, because the uh, they're like fluttering, and uh, yeah, it, it is kind of like a bird-like conversation. Um, so
1: yeah, it's, they're, it's very pretty, though. I liked mm, it a lot. Yeah, I like it. Okay, the fourth movement is where the symphony gets its nickname from, La Caccia. <laughs> it's called La Chasse, which means the hunt, and then they use the Italian for the, <laughs> the fourth hey, one, La Caccia.
0: Cacciatore.
1: Yeah. Language, languages were um, just kind of... All, all over the place in the music world back then. Everybody spoke everything. Okay, this has hunting horns in it. There's a Mannheim crescendo. I had to look this up. I actually knew the. I knew the um, the Mannheim rocket, but that's not what this is. A Mannheim crescendo um is something where it's like a crescendo that the whole orchestra. It's it's not where they they they're. they're quieting, they get loud. A Mannheim crescendo is more like instruments are added, I guess, to make it like louder. Stacked. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The stacking the instruments, the instruments and making the uh, the orchestra sound louder. That's a Mannheim crescendo. So you hear that at the beginning of this. It's an innovation of the Mannheim school of the early to mid 1700s, for those of you who would like to know. Uh, these types of hunting horn movements were common in works at the time. Uh, because they're exciting, really. Um, this one is no different. It's really um, very exciting writing. And uh, the performance picks up a lot of detail in the orchestra writing. Uh, the compound meter at this speed that's uh, six eight drives the music forward. Um, compound means that you're adding sort of like two fours, so you have eight and it's mm. six eight, so it's two threes in a bar instead of one. Uh, there are some great pastoral sounding themes in the texture as well. Uh, there's a lot to listen to and captivate the ear. This is really kind of a little uh yeah, it's a lot of ear candy in this um yeah. in this movement. You've got yeah. these
0: quick changes to minor, like from the major. There's like boom, it's in minor and modulations too. Um, one thing, the horn the horn calls are kind of answered by the trumpets, so it's kind of <laughs> it's hard to imagine it without trumpets after hearing this. I wonder what was what else could have been uh, going on. And there's um and probably also, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> he probably just added them. <laughs> There's also this kind of, um, I don't know if it's not really a glissando, uh, but it's a this downward figure that keeps the motion of the hunt going on. And it's passed right. around uh, through the flutes and strings. And then finally towards the ending, the horns uh, get that. So it's like this, you know, kind of uh, gives you this image of chasing. Uh, right. For the hunt. And uh, yeah, it, it's passed around the different instrument sections uh, in an interesting way that you know it gives you this constant feeling of uh, you know the chase in in the piece. So, right, and yeah, all I'll this is performed
1: to. to a yeah all this is performed to a galloping rhythm. The rhythm would be like of a horse galloping. So you want to think about this. You're actually when you're hearing music. You hear, you're You're hearing like the horses galloping and sort of like if you're in the situation all these other things are happening while that's happening so it's almost like you're experiencing the whole thing rather than say reading about it like one thing at a time in a book or you know in mm. a movie whatever somebody decides to show you. you 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 actually get to experience several things at the same time when listening to music and I really love that about music and about this piece too uh, this work is performed excellen- excellently by the orchestra and by uh, Marek Stilets and should win the composer some converse. This might be a good first work to hear, actually. Yeah. Actually, you can start at the beginning. This is pretty fantastic all the mm. way through. All right. Track six, Die Gute Mutter, an overture. This is an opera. And uh this is the overture only, 1795. Uh, the opera was an adaptation of the French play La Bonne Mère, which means the same thing, The Good Mother. It's set in the Austrian countryside. <laughs> okay. Oh, the opera is. Okay. The plot revolves around the widow, Rosalia. Her daughter, Marianne, is courted by the Viennese fop, Rosenhügel. And, <laughs> <laughs> Rosenhügel. You know, you, know uh, you, you already know you don't want your daughter dating Rosenhügel, no, do you?
0: It, no. Sounds kind of smarmy, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, and she has a, a boy next door, uh, sweetheart, uh Christel. Uh, And he's feeling despair because she's going out with this um, well-dressed guy. Anyway, um, Rosalia, the mother, is unimpressed by Rosenhügel, as we are by his name, and uh, devises a way to make her daughter realize who truly deserves her love. Christelle, of course. Um, The overture makes use of uh country dance themes and so it's, it's really appealing right away uh which will also be heard in the final course of the opera should if we ever get to hear it one day that would be kind of nice mm. as hey noxos you want to get to work on that <laughs> and put it <a, laughs> put together an entire opera recording we'll talk about it um anyway we haven't done an opera yet actually it's because they take a lot of time mm. Alright, so it's kind of like a bookend in the opera. You hear it in the overture and then at the end of the opera again. So kind of this whole country sort of music theme, kind not country music like American country because pastoral music, let's say. Theme just kind of like uh bookends the opera. Um and the opera opens with local villagers dressed in their finest clothes, um preparing a start of ring dance. This is very high spirited playing from the orchestra. It's very it's very easy on the ear, these these sorts of pastoral movements are. And, um, it, yeah, very, very good. Yeah. I this um,
0: Mark brings out uh, the dynamics really well here. Uh, the contrasts, uh, are highlighted, uh, which, uh, is nice. And then I, I like the, uh, short kind of answering trumpet figures in this, uh, as well. Uh, they yeah. add to that, uh, kind of flavor. Yeah. So just a fun overture, uh, In between the symphonies,
1: the the final work on the disc is probably the uh, biggest work, the Symphony in C major, Opus thirty three, number two, published in seventeen ninety eight, along with two other symphonies. This is the middle one in the um that of the ones that were published. Um, the material is reused from stage music, and that's probably why they're going to go into uh, stage music next um, in their next um, project. it's because this this material is reused from stage music that Rachmaninoff wrote for the Viennese court theaters. It's dedicated to Baron Peter von Braun, who was the manager of these theaters, and writing these themes into a symphony, of course, gave it a chance to exist as music performed on its own. So you don't need to see the play or have like some special performance of the music uh, made up. It's it all forms its own, you know, compact work of art. Um, each movement expands music from a single work except the menu and trio okay so Allegro Maestoso first movement um the music comes from the first act overture to the play Siri Brahe oder Die Neugierigen which means the curious from 1794 um this opens very spaciously with these very broad musical gestures uh it's got an appealing first subject bold like a unison opening in mozart I, I'll, I compared them to mozart or to uh beethoven just to help listeners get an idea of what it might sound like but just go to the spotify and listen to it i think it's um it's very much its own thing the opening theme is easily re- excuse me easily recognizable it's charming it's got a charming dancing second theme uh the development section is charming as well uh very pleasing all the way through and very lengthy at uh, 10 minutes long He develops these themes uh, quite a bit, keeps the ear interested though.
0: Yeah. This one has that, that, you know, the descending theme, it's just four notes, but it's so well-developed. It becomes another hook, just sticks in your mind. Uh, and then he, you know, he makes sure he plants that before, uh, you know, he, he plays with it and develops it around. So, um, it's really easy to follow, uh, accessible, uh, Type of movement here, uh, and I really like uh, the minor section in the development uh, part. It's got some real interesting right. twists and uh, turns uh, through there. And like you say, he's not in a hurry to uh, get this moving over with. So right. he, he has a lot of uh, space to develop all the different. Uh, yeah, interesting twists
1: is harmonic twists, is a uh, thing with this composer. He's very inventive that way. Mm-hmm. He knows how to keep his audience entertained. Second movement is an adagio, and this music comes from the third act overture to the romantic tragedy Dispana in Peru, older Rolas Tod, meaning the Spaniards in Peru or Rolas's death. This is a tranquil movement with muted strings and interweaving wind solos. And the wind solos are really nice. Mm. Uh, It's got a fairly slow pace. It's flowing. Uh, This isn't as quiet as the word tranquil would suggest, but uh, the movement does suggest that the happy calm of a warm spring evening, a warm spring evening for those of you not from New York. (laughs) The orchestra really is delivering... Yeah, the orchestra really delivers here as well. The structural lines are clearly discernible. There's a confidence in the playing that I didn't always hear in earlier recordings, but uh, this is really very different. Um, well-defined lines in the various sections of the orchestra, they bring this movement off very well. Um, it moves along throughout the almost 10-minute length. Again, another very long movement. We've already had like 20 minutes of music, and we're only um, two two movements into this uh, four-movement symphony. The third movement is the menuet these were pretty traditional at the time until beethoven just replaced the menuet with a scherzo but uh ranitsky was still using them at this point um they were expected by audiences um generally so beethoven really surprised everybody when he took them away uh this uh, menuet um daniel mentions in his notes are not for dancing indeed um it's pretty fast with some almost beethovenian accents the trio consists of chirpy wind lines and it's very the trio is very charming. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. And the finale. I like those
0: staggered accents, those are uh give yeah. this real sense of motion that uh, pushes it through with the, and a little pauses to the uh right. it's a nice touch rhythmically.
1: Right, Be- Beethovenian generally means like sforzati off the beat, like kind of mm. like accents off the beat so he likes to do. Um, The fourth movement is a finale, Andante, and then moving to Allegro. It's got a rustic, slow introduction, and uh, this one is a reuse of the short overture to the ballet Divine Lese, The Grape Harvest, uh, from 1794. The Allegro section, um, which comes after the slow introduction, is very original. Is original, I think. I I, I don't think this comes from something else. I think it's just the... um, the uh, Andante part, but I'm not clear on that. So, Daniel, let us know. The Allegro section, I think, is original. I th- It makes great use of the opening motif, um, and there's like this um, droning bass in it as well that kind of gives it like a country feel. Um, the country dance gets interrupted by more traditional symphonic figuration, which in turn is interrupted by a manically repeating
0: figure in the strings yeah like five times it yeah it, it really throws you off everything this is like brilliant um uh you know composition technique uh, that he inserts in here and then but yet it's somehow comes together seamlessly with the rest of the movement, so uh it's a really uh interesting um sort of structure uh that's built into this.
1: Yeah, the technique put me in mind of Beethoven there too, because he does like to repeat a lot of things, right. especially in his much later music. Okay, so which would have been later than this. Um, so there's that. Okay, the texture changes often and very creatively. It's always interesting. Consistently good ideas here. We hear a repeat. Then the development sounds like it goes into a somber minor key. Uh, the recap, the recapitulation reintroduces the dance again cut off by the figuration Uh, this time the repeating figure isn't quite so manic but it's still there and all's well by the solid ending cadence in all in all these are all all four of the works on this disc are very appealing and with memorable themes you really can't go wrong with this album uh ranitsky was quite the melodist along with his um contemporaries, um, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, and uh, among others. Um, this entire recording comes across well, and this is the best release of the series so far. If you haven't heard any of these Ranitsky releases yet on Naxos, I would start with uh, this one, which is uh, volume 3, and then go back from there. Or, wait for the next ones and go ahead.
0: Yeah, I really like this too. Um, it just all seems really upbeat, and um, I, I feel like Merrick really like the the overall the sort of um, macro uh, sort of approach to the works is perfect Uh, and a lot of them you know even like the first uh, overture it's got these kind of really uh, super fast 16th note lines and things and the 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 brisk nature comes through in the performance but they never feel rushed right so all the tempos just feel really dialed in on all of the Uh, movements and in the works and so the 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 overall impressive impression is just everything is cohesive and Mm. just dialed in uh right and uh so yeah i feel like spot-on performances that really bring out the best in the works and um I, i really thought this is the strongest release of the series and um but having listened to the previous ones and this one now i really feel like i have a Kind of concept of Ronitsky in my mind, right. and uh, I can understand his uniqueness and uh, how he fits in in this time period. Um, yeah, and I'm eager to hear more. So let's hope that those uh, Nexus releases come out in the spring.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it. Daniel and Marek, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Sounds fantastic. All right, moving on. Our second recording of this week in the classical category is by the C O chamber orchestra now co is c slash o sort of like you'd write care of on a um letter yeah and the album is called uh, divertissement with an exclamation point at the end so i guess it's really called divertissement you know something sub- you know, or something like that <laughs> <Okay>. pops, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to uh, excite people okay um this is a Beast recording and it's on an SACD. So you lucky people with SACD players will get like a, a much richer sound out of this. I love I love SACDs. I wish everything was SACD. All right. This the program notes in the booklet, by the way, are by uh the composer Michael Ippolito, who's also featured on this album. So it's uh worth worthwhile reading them. Um because the whole program seems to revolve around his um Work. He he explains a lot about um what a divertissement or divertimento in Italian uh, is. It's just a. It's supposed to be sort of a light work to be played maybe in the background while you're eating dinner, but composers didn't always uh, conceive of it that way. Um, And he mentions Mozart. Mozart's some of Mozart's um divertimenti. Some of them are kind of like you know dinner music, but some of them are um really deep. He gets he got some really profound ideas and a few of them. Um, I I think of K five six three. If you want to hear that one, if you want to hear like a really serious divertimento, um, that's for uh, string trio. Really these have, beautiful.
0: These run of kind of a range here too. I think the first yeah, one is more. Of they a, do. It's more of a yeah. diversion, and then we get a little bit more serious as we go along.
1: Indeed, we do. Okay, the first one is uh, Jacques Ibert, French composer. Uh, who lived, um, who was born in 1892, died in 1962. So he was one of these composers, sort of like, um, Jean Francais, who we, uh, talked about a few weeks ago in the, um, the flute concerto recording, um, who lived in the 20th century. Fran- Francais was more contemporary. He re- he only died recently, who didn't pick up on the, um, the, um, sort of, aesthetics of the time. He didn't write um, challenging art music or 12-tone music or any, anything like that. He, he wanted to entertain. Um, it's, it's something these two composers had in common. And Ibert was like that as well. Um, all of his music is fairly light at least all the music I know by him is fairly light and very entertaining melodic enjoyable right away and this piece is no different it was composed in it's called Divertissement for Chamber Orchestra written in 1930 I composed it was actually composed in 1929 as incidental music for a production of the comic play The Italian Straw Hat and then sort of like the Ranitsky Symphony we just talked about it was reconceived as a concert piece the next year uh, there's a lot of wit and virtuosity in it, and we would expect that from Iber if you know his other works. His yeah, his his music is very cheerful, and this work is. Um, these are uh, Ippolito's words. Seriously, unserious <laughs> in the ways it plays with our expectations. Again, yeah, your expectations are often um, sort of well, they're they're not met. Let's say. This is a six-movement work. It starts with an introduction, very manic, catchy, very short. The second movement, cortege, which is kind of like a funeral march, what a cortege is. It's the longest movement at almost five minutes. Um, and it starts out like a funeral procession, like I said, but uh, turns into a like a kind of dance later with earnest and very appealing measures and f- melodies, sorry, and figuration. And then you hear for some bizarre reason, um Mendelssohn's wedding march <laughs> come out of the texture twice. You know you know that one. Dun, 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 that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> you really completely unexpected. Um, after the first interruption we hear a rather disturbing march, something like a maybe an army kind of Marching through, there's some sneering brass, and then Mendelssohn interrupts again, and then the brass march continues. It's diverting, uh, in a comical sense, for the period. Uh, the gallop presumes, the movement ends with a cadence on this more endearing music. The third movement is a nocturne, delicately crafted, creates a seductive atmosphere, highly contrasted to the previous movement. It's kind of mysterious sounding, and rather brief, at less than three minutes. Fourth movement is a, vault, is a waltz, very light. It's got a circus-y opening. Um opening, so it's not like an elegant waltz. It's more of a kind of waltz of the people, I guess. Um, generic waltzing melodies appear, and we feel all the glitter of a ballroom, so then it gets elegant. And then after 1, 30, one minute 30 seconds, uh, this gets sardonically commented on by a lone trombone, <laughs> and it ends overly enthusiastically. Alright, the fifth movement is called Parade. This is uh Ippolito says this is a tongue in chic movement. But it sounds cheerful to me, to be honest. It's got an empty kind of happiness to it that parades make me feel. Uh kinda like a sugar high. And it quickly marches away after a minute and forty three seconds. Now, I'm saying these things, I don't mean to make it sound like this music isn't good. It's it's just light. That's it's the part thing of it's the intent, the way it makes though, it, it. It's part of the yeah, intent. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I hope we're uh I hope you don't think my uh, my whiskey obnoxiousness is uh, intruding here because I'm not drinking any whiskey tonight. Anyway, the finale, the last movement, is kind of cartoonish and hyperactive and also very short, less than two minutes. Uh, it starts with dissonant piano chords and harsh brass, which it all sounds pretty funny in this context, actually. And then off to the races, complete with sports whistles that a referee would blow. Okay, yeah. you know, like in a, in a sporting event. The whole thing is very light entertainment and wears its divertissement title very well.
0: Yeah, it ends with a kind of like a can can dance romp that's <laughs> right. Da, 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 and it's like yeah. with those whistles and uh, yeah, it's all in good fun though. I think yeah. you know it's it's sort of like he's really writing for this genre so that you don't take it too seriously. But right. you should take the uh compositional Uh, Approach and the contrast in sections seriously. It's a nice little journey, um, but it doesn't take itself seriously. Uh, So it's just good fun, but uh, excellent writing and nice instrument parts here. Right. Varied fun and exciting.
1: Okay, the next work we have uh, four composers on this disc, and the second one is uh, Emile Bernard. Now, he was a composer, lived 1843 to 1902. And do not confuse him, you art lovers out there, with the French post-impressionist painter and writer, Emile Bernard, who lived 1868 to 1941. They're two different people. Uh, This Emile Bernard lived earlier. This is called Divertissement for Winds, Opus 36, written in 1894. It's a double wind quintet, so there are ten instruments that you're hearing. Uh, Ippolito says this piece almost has symphonic ambitions. I would underline that word almost because I don't really think this sounds terribly symphonic. He's really going by the uh, the structure and the writing I think. It's a pretty big piece uh, as far as like its um, size for three movements. It, it goes on longer than you would think a divertissement would. Okay, as we heard in the Iberra piece, which had all short movements. The opening, andante sostenuto, and then moving to allegro, molto moderato. This is the first movement. The opening sounds are almost Mozartian in its harmony. uh, And then romantic era harmony follows. So he kind of switches back and forth between the classical sense of line that uh, people like Mozart, um, Haydn, and Renitzky had... And um, this kind of more blurred, um, romantic sense of harmony and line. Um, The opening of the Allegro is balletic. It kind of sounds dancey. It's charming and energetic. I enjoy the part writing a lot. It's easy to pick out each instrument in the ensemble, which is always nice for me. You you feel like you're hearing the score. you're almost seeing yeah. the score with your ears almost when the yeah. music is clearly played.
0: On this one, the bassoon comes through really nicely, which is always kind of cool. Yeah,
1: All right. Transparent scoring. Yeah, I really like the scoring on this. It's lightish and uplifting, uh, like the bubbles in Champagne I wrote. <laughs> is that uplifting? I don't know. It kind of makes <laughs> you feel like that. It's kind of like a lightish feeling. All right. The second movement is Allegro Vivace, and this starts charmingly too. With chirpy, skipping melodic lines, I was struck by the sustaining of high spirits in this almost five minute movement. Uh, it slows, it darkens a bit by the two minute mark for a bit of contrast, but doesn't really stay there very long. Uh, shortly after it resumes on its merry way, the orchestration continues to draw the ears with its interesting lines, poking out of the texture, or peeking out of the texture, I should say. And the final mov- movement, the third movement, Andante dash allegro non troppo starts andante fairly somberly uh you can hear a bit of wagner in the accompanying repeated chords supporting the melody after the two minute mark kind of surprising uh sort of reference there um the andante features earnestly twisting melodies it comes to a full cadence darkens and then tentatively starts a more cheerful melody which builds up to the full thing at around the four around the 4 minute 45 second to 5 minute mark. It's it's a build. It's kind of interesting how the theme doesn't just start, it sort of d- kind of comes into being sort of slowly. I hear a lot of droning opening fi- open fifths in the accompaniment and that gives the music a feeling of the countryside. So these droning sort of bagpipe type instruments called a musette. In fact, by the 7 minute and 20 second mark we're getting taste of country dance in compound meter. I like the way this is gradually exposed in the music as though we're coming across it while peeking through branches. You know, you're just kind of discovering <laughs> it, you know. We revert it's it's not like you're there, you're sort of like kind of coming upon it almost. It, it it sort of comes into focus slowly. And the composer has done this in his writing. Uh we revert to the opening allegro theme at the 8-minute mark and head for the final cadence. This piece was a really nice discovery. I liked this a lot.
0: Yeah, there's like rich timbres here. Uh you've got you know, bassoon, oboe, clarinet, French horn comes out, uh, low brass gets a little spotlight, and then, you know, the the tempo increases, but then the mood kind of lightens. You get this kind of, yeah, going through different sceneries. I liked it a lot, and um, <clears throat> in comparison to the Iberra, it's, it's more serious, but it's still a lot of fun uh, to listen to. It's like a little uh, journey. Uh, through the, just the short three movements. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, different things all contained in a compact piece.
1: Right. And then next, the reason why I really wanted to hear this album, because I love this piece, by uh, Bela Bartok. Divertimento for String Orchestra, written in 1939, right on the brink of World War II. Hmm. Um, he sounds, wrote this...
0: Yeah. It sounds very... <laughs> Much like Bartok, though, it's like... It does, if, yeah. if you had given me a blind test on this, I would have said, oh, that's Bartok, you know, uh, yeah. right away, yeah.
1: Now, this is a work I know fairly well. I've heard it... Uh, I have a few recordings of it, and I've heard it played live. Um, let me just say... First of all, I love this work. It doesn't get recorded often enough. I like Bartok in general. He's one of my favorite composers. Um, I just really love the modernist era at the early 20th century, late 19th century in general. Um so basically, if you want to know who my favorite composers are, they are well, Mozart, Brahms, and then anybody who is a modernist. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's basically it. Um, oh, and and Bach is just—I never mentioned Bach, but he's everybody's favorite, and he's my one of mine too. But I, I just take it for granted that everybody will assume that. Um, but so. All right, this work doesn't get off recorded often enough, so I was kind of excited to see it here and even on Beast SACD. I was pretty excited about this. Um it plays between light and dark. Um I guess as you would expect with World War II mm-hmm. looming. Uh Bartók wrote it on the Swiss conductor, music patron and impresario Paul Sacher's Swiss estate. That's a big name among um 20th century composers. He uh, commissioned a lot of works and he's uh, been celebrated in music quite often, uh, which must have been a peaceful place. And uh, after he wrote this piece, Bartok emigrated to the United States, where he spent the rest of his life. All right, this is the only string work on the recording. And, f- you know, for me, it's a good performance, but I didn't feel like the producer and engineer got this right. Um, strings can be recorded more closely with impunity and on other recordings I have they are one of the things I really love about this work is the motor rhythms to it they, they there's there's a, these really harsh aggressive rhythm and uh, I like it when you can hear the um, like the bow on the strings like when it's recorded really close this particular performance is recorded I think too far away it's a little smooth and kind of creamy sounding mm-hmm. and I don't think that's appropriate nevertheless um and especially and i think it's also coming after the work we just heard it's really kind of an odd sort of um juxtaposition but um it is the bartok work and i still love it so let's go through it here the first movement allegro non troppo starts with energy and good humor driving rhythms folk like themes and all those changing uh irregular meters that make his music so appealing to me um it sounds like there's too much reverb on this recording to my ears. I, I just like this to be drier and harsher. Um, and it's really not here. Maybe if, if you don't like that, you might like this a lot. This would be a good um, way to hear this work.
0: On parallel to that, uh, I thought yeah. they did pay attention. That may be more of an engineering decision. Yeah. But the uh, uh, Yeah, dyna- no problem with the performance, I should Yeah, the say. dynamics but, yeah. in the performance are very good, I thought, uh, which gives it yeah. a sense of contrast in the performance uh like you say though it is a it is a rather uh smooth sounding bar talk sound
1: yeah maybe too much it's it doesn't seem yeah it doesn't seem right to me like it doesn't seem like in character um yeah there's a the, the ensemble also has a kind of glow to them in this recording that isn't really right for this music um, but detail is discernible. I mean, the, uh, the the orchestra really does play this work well, so it's it's not as though this recording is a wash. You can kind of get the the orchestral detail out. Um, repeated octaves break this kind of mood, and an undertone of darkness haunts the rest of the movement. There's a brief hurdy gurdy texture after the octaves. Uh, then the strings all play stabbing figures. It goes on into more disturbing territory to the end. Let me say this, but I still love it, because <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's Bartok. It's just he's really interesting. At the end, there's a reminiscence of the opening theme. The second movement, molto adagio, we hear this um example of what they call Bartok's night music. You hear this also in the uh, middle movement of the the second piano concerto, and in the concerto for orchestra, there's a there's a movement that starts like this too. Um, it's lightly it's a lightly played rocking string figures with no um tremolo or what's what's the word I'm looking for vibrato, no vibrato on them and um, he does this quite often to evoke I guess the night. Um, it always has a kind of mystery to it and here this mysterious sounding texture builds to a slow crescendo in several ferocious outbursts before coming to rest in something like emptiness rather than repose. We get to the third and final movement, the Allegro Asai, a vigorous dance. It's very joyful. Uh, the sound, by the way, the um, I, I guess I understand why these, this was recorded so distantly, because it works here. The, the orchestra plays very loudly. Uh, the ensemble has the appropriate energy for this. There are a lot of pizzicati. They don't impact as much as on the closer recording that I was talking about earlier. Uh, themes are subjected to fugal development after the 1 minute 32nd mark when the tempo suddenly slows down it's a magical effect and we eventually get up to the full speed again and we reach the end okay the work this has all been leading up do you want to say anything about Bartok by the way or
0: yeah I enjoyed it Um, as you mentioned um, I think I have another recording of this but I haven't listened to it in a long time so this was kind of fresh to me and the character I mean you know in the way that Bartok writes string parts and Everything. It, 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 you'll know it's going to be bar talk right away when you start listening to it. But as you it's said, the, o- yeah. the the overall uh, sort of impression is very smooth uh, and perhaps too smoothly you know, captured for bar talk. It does, it, the edge is sort of taken off from it. Um, but um, yeah, uh, that's, you know, it could have, as you said, maybe been closer mic'd and with a bit more edge on the string sound. But the performance is uh, quite. Uh, quite good Uh, yeah so um, no issues for me there that was good yeah and the um, yeah and and it's a good little journey just with the the three movements uh, especially um, the the second movement I know I've heard it before but I was a little bit um, how can I say I I, my expectations were sort of uh, questioned again with that Hmm. sort of uh this, the rising and falling low line in the second movement, it's kind of this amorphous kind of uneasiness, like yeah. a, a ship at sea and you can't, and you're in right. the fog and you can't see where you're going. Um, and so that kind of put me on uh, a little expectation uh, journey, even though I had heard it before, it was sort of like new uh, to me. Uh, and then at the end, it turns kind of more placid and there's just that like one final little outburst uh, to remind you of what's been before there. Um and yeah, the the theme in the in the third uh, movement is really nice. Yeah, I liked it. Like I say, it's a bit pretty for for a bar talk overall yeah. uh concept. But yeah, nice performance uh, by the right. ensemble.
1: I thought yeah, I thought the re- the recording made it pretty sort of mm. anyway. All right, well the work that all this entire recording has been leading up to is um American composer Michael Ippolitos Divertimento for Chamber Orchestra, composed in the year 2017. How about that? This work is only, Mm. what, five years old? Four years old? Four years old. Three and a half years old. Well, by now it's probably four. Right. We're, We're almost at the end of the year. Okay, a little bit about Michael Ippolito. He's an American composer. He's from Tampa, Florida. And he now lives in Texas, where he works at Texas State University as Associate Professor of Composition. Um he says that he had the three works that we just heard um in mind when he composed his work so the ensemble performed those three works and now they're doing his divertimento here so let's take a look at this the first movement is con moto brisk and rhythmically propulsive opening and it starts pretty amiably with uh, wind melodies Um, It's a pretty traditional harmony and an easy listen. He's not really challenging your ears at all. Um, There's some great swirling wind figures and propulsive rhythms after the three-minute mark. And there are a lot of interrupted stabbing figures as various groups in the orchestra have their say. It's a pretty enjoyable movement overall. The second movement is an aria burlesca, almost an overt farce between the graceful and the grotesque in the um, composer's words from that's lifted from the booklet this starts with a graceful rhythm over which the grotesque interruptions are overlaid in the pizzicati bass and brass the brass aren't pizzicati <laughs> the movement goes back and forth like this and it ends in the grotesque the third movement a menuet allegro maestoso is an interplay between earthly shifting accents and an almost otherworldly Legato again. That's the composer talking. Uh, the Menuet is heavily scored, and the legato is light sounding, like a lot of. He calls it otherworldly, and the way he tries to get this effect is with these. Um, I guess it's strings, but it sounds like they're very lightly played. It's almost like if anyone knows what the glass harmonica is, it's sort of like a. It's it's sort of like the, uh, playing like a a glass. You know, you wetting your finger and like putting it on the rim of a glass and right. making that sound. He's kind of getting something approximating that sound in this movement so it's kind of interesting for the ear the fourth movement adagio dash allegro it starts out with uh an organ-like wind chorale chorale being like church music uh, and it contrast against a biting jig in the strings this is Ippolito's description again um now I'm my comment: Lovely opening chords in the winds. The jig figure in the strings opens as a fugato and picks up energy. So a fugato is like a fugue. So you hear the theme, and then you hear it in another voice, and then another voice, in staggered. Um, they don't all enter at the same time. They enter at different times, and so they're all overlapping. Uh, this inv- pretty inventive orchestration in the Jig section. We get a brief return to the Adagio theme at the end, right before the Jig figure closes the piece. So this was, um, to me, it's, it's nothing like the Iber piece, but it goes back to the lightness, I think, of that, uh, opening Iber, uh, work. So we kind of have come full circle, I feel like, with Ippolito's work. And this is really a true divertimento this album was 79 minutes long which is pretty long and but it went by very quickly i heard the whole thing in one sitting and couldn't believe the time had went by it was enjoyable i liked it i'd recommend it
0: yeah i like this i mean you end up very modern here um but um on the ippolito i liked in the first movement uh, something that you, you don't hear all the time um as he there's a lot of motion for sure here and i i like his use of sort of um especially in the brass parts when they come in it's sort of you get this pan from left to right ah. uh, in a conscious thing. I, so did, I
1: i didn't hear this on headphones did you hear this on headphones
0: um yeah i think i did yeah oh, okay. and so uh he's consciously you know giving you this the um sort of spatial elements of the parts there too uh and so the the music sort of uh, surrounds you and goes through there, and right. I like the dynamic. I,
1: I, yeah, I did hear it in surround though, but I didn't uh, notice. I'm gonna have to go put it on again. Yeah, check that out <laughs> again.
0: Um, I, I'm sure you're yeah. thinking of of that usage of yeah. uh, the the uh, as the parts progress there, and and really nice dynamics. Uh, and, and then in the second movement, you get this kind of daintiness of the oboe and flute, uh, but it's contrasted with these occasional kind of plodding. Uh, bass notes and the sort of loping sense of humor is in there too um, the third movement I thought it's kind of nice use of different timbres uh, also uh, you have contrasting timbres and then staccato and legato lines that uh, move about in the sections so you have got a lot of contrast going on and then in the final movement uh, the uh, more legato nature of the woodwinds and strings get interrupted by the timpani, there, um, and you've got the punctuation of the brass and timpani. So I thought this one was rhythmically and tonally interesting. Of course, it's not as uh, melodic as the other uh, divertimentos here, but it's still enjoyable mm-hmm. uh, in its own uh, character. So yeah. uh, it's a stylistic approach, and you see it through different kind of eras and uh, interpretations of what that concept is but as a it's kind of a concept album in that sense yeah it's kind of and, an intellectual sort of uh, yeah but it's enjoyable it's and as you say it goes by quickly it, well. it, it goes yeah. it doesn't seem you know like it's as long as it actually is so
1: yeah very enjoyable all right third recording in classical and the final one this is a big double album and they're two fairly big works um this is called this is on deutsche gramophone and the album is called The Song of the Earth, and uh that will, of course, put you in mind of Gustav Mahler, who has a famous um symphonic work with vocals, Das Lied von der Erde, um, The Song of the Earth. But this one uh, pairs that with a new work by the Chinese composer Xiaogang Ye, born in 1955. And um, his work is also called The Song of the Earth. This is a pretty interesting concept. It, ye's work uses the same poems that um, uh, Mahler used to, to write his work. Now, they're very different, <laughs> these two works. <laughs> First of all, yeah. Mahler, when he got these, th- these were um, uh, the texts were taken from a book published by Hans Bethke, um, called Die Chinesische Flöte, the Chinese flute, um, which was published in the early um, 20th century. And uh, so they were published in German, which were translated from French translations of the original Chinese poems. So <laughs> the, Talk about you, you lost can imagine in translation. how far away. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine a lot got lost in translation here. Um, the funny, the interesting thing is, is that Ye, the, the composer Xiaogang Ye, Um, uses the original Chinese poems as his texts, and they're sung in Chinese. Yeah, uh, which is really interesting. Except that I don't know Chinese, but there are translations, of course. (laughs) We'll get to that. There's something needs to be. There's a few things that need to be said about that. It's it's pretty interesting. But let's uh, talk about the Mahler first. All right, now first of all, I should mention this is um the solos are different for both works and uh the common component is the Shanghai Symphony Orchestra conducted by Long Yu. I should mention also the Chinese names are given in western style so Yu is the family name and Ye is the final the family name of the um uh the composer. Okay. So, Mahler's what he wants to do here is sort of um Put these two works up against each other and show and make the uh Chinese poems sort of the um the highlight of the recording and It's a pretty interesting concept, I have to say um I was very interested in knowing like what these original Chinese poems sounded like um after hearing the Mahler work, as I could tell Mahler really made them into a <laughs> Malarian uh, thing. It really just sounds like Malar and nothing else. Uh, there, there's nothing Chinese about them, although there are little kind of like chinoiseries in the in the work, I guess. But it's mostly filled with Malarian angst and um, <laughs> existential uh, acceptance of uh, the the uh, briefness of life and that sort of thing. Um, the Mahler work, unlike the Ye work, has a long history. It's got a hundred years now, and has there have been some really spectacular recordings made of this and the most famous being um the Bruno Walter one with uh, Kathleen Ferrier singing the soprano part made in 1959 um i think i think that was on Decca records it was in mono but um ferrier was uh dying of cancer at the time and um she sang this otherworldly sixth movement the abschied the very long abschied movement which has just become legendary um and uh, everything gets measured a- against that and uh, there have been other great performances of it too with other great singers the tenor really never <laughs> gets mentioned much it's uh, it's because it's usually that final abschied mo- mo- movement and the uh the uh sorry i said soprano mezzo soprano or it should be an alto actually but a mezzo often can get down into the lower notes um, uh, Mahler liked the um, he, he, he'll he often have like a an alto woman's voice uh, because he likes the earthy lower notes that it can produce um, and I like that too actually it really has a real color to it that you don't really think of um, in a soprano voice which just sounds white and chirpy <laughs> often the appeal <laughs> comes in the phrasing not usually in the color although sometimes it does in a soprano voice anyway if you're looking to be moved by Mahler in this uh, particular um recording look elsewhere because um Yu is not going for a romantic conception of this work he really wants to highlight the poems and he even mentioned in the um booklet notes that he tried to conduct this you know to bring out the more Chinese elements but he couldn't because it's very he said I think he said it's very Austrian bohemian you know you know, mm. f- of its era. Mahler, right? It's It sounds like someone who's read a lot of Schopenhauer, you know, something <laughs> like that. So, um, he said, he claims that he didn't, um, he had to go for the German, um, interpretation, but, you know, I'm not so sure that he did because it sounds to me like he's, uh, he's really lightened up the sound quite a bit. He doesn't really go for the long line in this performance. Instead, he really tries to highlight local detail. So, as I've mentioned, like in an earlier podcast, he's more of a tree composer and not a forest uh, conductor. Sorry, a tree conductor, not a forest conductor. We're going to get a lot of uh, trees here. And this is not a bad thing. Now, if you're coming to this work with expectations, as I'll confess I did, um, you're not really going to be too happy with it. But if you can kind of Get an open mind about it, which I convinced myself to do um it's really enjoyable it's a it, you get you hear a lot of the orchestration and a lot of the changes of sort of um orchestral texture and um um rhythm and the, these sorts of things and it's really interesting Mahler like is constantly like changing the orchestral colors almost like you're watching like a slideshow with each um um verse of the of the poem it's it's pretty interesting now he doesn't actually present the poems like as they were originally published he sort of combines things from some of them and he's really looking to make his own statement about um you know life and he's he sees a kindred spirit in the uh in the uh chinese poems that he he really did sort of transform in this work the first movement das trinklied vom jammer der Erda, The Drinking Song of Earth's Misery. Um, this is with the um, tenor. Oh, I should mention the tenor's name, Brian Yagde. Uh He's very good in this. Um, um, there's a great fanfare at the orchestra at the very beginning, very bright sounding. The tenor sounds a bit recessed, though. It, it feels like you wants the orchestral um, sort of colors to really be the uh, main focus here you know along with the the text I guess but um the orchestra is pretty far forward uh I feel like they're the star uh you highlights the changing rhythmic profiles exceptionally well this particular tenor Brian Yagda has a high tessitura and the tenor always sounds like hysterical in these works cuz he has to go very high and um I think Mahler wants that actually uh Yagda handles this well Let's go to the second movement Der Einsamer in Herbst in Herbst Autumn Loneliness This has the uh soprano Michelle De Young so she's going to wind up singing the Abschied movement Uh here Mahler really has transformed the meaning of these poems into something heavier and late romantic okay and the heavy mezzo soprano voice only adds weight to this Um, De Young sounds well equipped for this piece. She's not an alto, but she has a pretty heavy sounding voice. There's a darkness to her voice that's really ideal for this piece. The third movement, Jugend," which means youth, Uh, again, heavy romanticism has done away with here for a bit. There's a bit of uh, Chinese-ness in the rhythm, chinoiserie, kind of a surface level. Chinese thing, okay? Yu brings this out in the orchestra. He really wants you to hear it. Um, Mahler adds a bit of regret in the music right before the two last verses that really isn't there in the text, (laughs) (laughs) which is an interesting commentary. So he's really changing the meaning of the text. He really needs the heaviness in this work, does Mahler. Fourth movement, Von der Schönheit, Beauty. Uh, Again, a little bit more of a Chinese feel to the orchestral lines. Fifth movement, Der Trunkene im Fräuling, The Drunkard in Spring. And I wrote here that it's almost like Mahler's incapable of the kind of drunken happiness that this poem puts forth. <laughs> now, this is something we both live in Japan, so we see this all the time. Uh, Japanese people, and Chinese people, I guess as well, are happy drunks. <laughs> they, they, they really enjoy being drunk it's they never get into fights well sometimes they do but it's very rare but they're kind of they're, they're the happy kind of drunk and I feel like Mahler's there's kind of an existential angst to the character in uh, Mahler's uh, orchestra writing um, their work is conducted I wrote here as though you knows the sentiment the sentiment of the original poem and can't let Mahler have his full orchestral say. So he's kind of (laughs) reining it in a little bit, I thought. All right, then we get to the last move, the very famous Der Abschied, The Farewell. This is 26 minutes long. And it starts out sounding pretty light in Yu's hands. There's something chamber-like about the whole performance of this movement and really the entire symphony. Uh, he, He gets a lighter sound. And we think of Mahler as being heavy when the big you know, orchestral build-ups come. The, um, you make sure you hear every change of tempo or rhythm as though they're scene changes, as I mentioned earlier. Um, this, is, this movement is more episodic than the long line that we get in the really great performances of this work. So it doesn't come across as movingly as it does in those performances. It's a bit more prosaic, dare I say. But that doesn't mean it's not enjoyable to listen to. The orchestral detail is really fantastic. Um. Um, I wound up uh, coming through this movement not moved basically, but I don't blame Michelle de Jong for that. I blame the pacing of the composer, but I don't think that's what he wants. He just wants to put across the poem, and he's not really interested in the big dramatic uh, weight that's uh supposed that I shouldn't say supposed to that comes across in other performances of this work. Um. He's he just paces the work differently, and for that reason, it's worth a listen. It's it's interesting. Just don't go into it thinking expecting to be like, uh, you know, moved by it. Um, the very famous uh, last word, evig, evig, forever, forever. Um, you know, when De Young sings it, it just kind of sounds like it's just the last word of the text, and it just the music just goes away. You don't really get this sort of sense of. Um, being kind of launched into the cosmos or you know, something like that. Um, so, all right, this is, if you're looking for a great performance of a Mahler, of this Mahler symphony that's going to move you like the older ones did, again, I'll go elsewhere. But I'd say this is really worth a listen because it's interesting and there are a lot of uh, details that you normally don't hear in other um recordings. By the way, I should mention, the Mahler um, Das Lied von der Erde, there were three recordings of this, big recordings of this, or probably even more than that, in the last uh, two years. Um, two of them were by the two uh, Fischer brothers, Ivan Fischer, conducting the Budapest Festival Orchestra, and his brother Adam Fischer, conducting I Forgot Who. And then there's a performance that was really great by uh, Vladimir Jur- Jurowski. Jurowski. Um, I think that's on the Alpha label, Oh, no, that's on Pentatone. I'm sorry. Uh, hear that one. That's a really good one as well. The point of this whole recording, though, is to hear the Mahler work and then to hear Xiao Gang Ye's take on these poems. His work is called The Song of the Earth. Uh, the title is given in English, but the songs are all sung in Chinese. And in the text, in the booklet, we get the original Chinese text all written in kanji, the Chinese um, writing system. Now... <laughs> And then there's an English translation, and the English translation tries to pick up the. Um, it, the it's not written in sentences. It tries to pick up the um, sort of um, imagery given by the Chinese characters. Um, it's it's trying to give a pretty direct translation. So you're going to have to fill in a lot of blanks. Now. Japan really isn't all that different. When, when Japanese people speak, they'll leave a lot of things unspoken, and your mind is sort of filling them all in. The problem is, in English, we don't do this. Right? You, have to, you have to kind of see the whole sentence. So it's, Especially it's, if you're it feels, from New York. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> hey. Hey. What are you giving me here?
0: Tell me. Speak English <laughs> to me yeah.
1: Alright, so it's kind of it's kind of odd, but I did appreciate the effort. Let's say because mm. he wants he wants us to know what these poems say in in their original form. Okay, let's go into the Chagallier piece. This is also six movements. It uses all the same poems that the Mahler um, Das Lied von der Erde uses, but uh, they're in a different order here. And the uh, it does end with the uh, Abschied movement. By the way, except it's much shorter here. The first movement, Tale of Sorrowful Song. This is the full poem by Li Bai. Um, All these um, poets, by the way, lived from the year 618 to 907. So these are very, very old texts from the Tang dynasty. Um, I was really curious to hear what uh, Ye's um, music was going to sound like. It starts with a swirling orchestral figuration with metal percussion, uh, which I think is a marimba. In this case, which wouldn't the translation tries to capture the Chinese lack of articles, and it seems kind of weird. What comes across in them, though, is that the poems are suggestive or atmospheric. Um, The orchestration is romantic and brash, and the vocal, which is sung here by the soprano Li Ping Zhang, again Zhang being the family name, um, it's sung in the Western style. But with inflected Chinese language, it's kind of odd. So it's kind of like a Western-style melodic line, but Chinese, unlike Japanese, by the way, is an inflected language. Like different sort of um, sort of swoops or sort of um, tones, ways yeah. of tones yeah. will change the meaning of the uh, the word that you're saying. So it's kind of interesting to hear here. I kind of wish I knew Chinese to kind of hear what she was doing with that. Th- this particular movement sounds very Western to me. The second um, movement, Banquet at Tao Family's Pavilion, is another Li Bai poem, a setting of a Li Bai poem. This one uses uses a more traditionally Chinese rhythm on the percussion, and it's also sung by the soprano uh, Li Ping Zhang. She's got this high, soaring voice. I forgot to mention also um, the soprano, this work is for soprano and baritone filling out the um Mahler work which is for the two middle voices tenor and and um well originally alto but in our case mezzo-soprano um the third movement imitation of old poem long autumn night is a poem by Chan Chi the soprano again sings this we haven't heard the baritone yet she's getting a lot of uh, a lot of time here The melody has a Chinese inflection to it in this case, so she really fits her vocal right into it. It's really nice. It's pretty beautiful. I liked this movement. It works well in this atmospheric, rather modernist movement. A lot of the orchestration to me sounded early 20th century. The fourth movement, Lotus Picking Song. This is a Li Bai poem. We're back to him. Uh, We finally get to hear the baritone, whose name is Shen Yang. Just one word. I'm guessing... That, that's he's just butting the two names together. Shen would be the first name and Yang the family name. Hmm. I don't know, don't quote me on that. Anyway, that's his. He goes by the name Shen Yang. Um, uh, this he has a rich, appealing voice. And this uh, movement, the vocal line is written more towards the Chinese sense of inflected um, uh, sounds. Okay the fifth uh, movement feelings upon awakening from drunkenness on a spring day this is a Li Bao poem okay we get the uh, the real feeling of Chinese and I guess um North Asian (laughs) the feeling of drunkenness it's got atmospheric orchestration a pretty melody um this is the baritone again uh he has a keening vocal at the end that apparently indicates drunk his drunkenness
0: I can identify with this movement yeah yeah,
1: right? I mean, but it's the kind of drunkenness. It's not the one that gives you the existential angst. Hmm. You know, they don't They don't have that. There is an existential angst, but it's not heavy somehow. No. There's something different. It's a different quality to it. I mean, they do have this sense of the impermanence of things in Asia, but it's sort of more poetically stated than terrifyingly, shall we say. And the last movement, the sixth movement, uh, Staying at Teacher's Mountain Retreat, Awaiting a Friend in Vain, and then the Farewell, the Abshid movement. This is the Soprano, uh, and uh, Meng Haoran is the poet. Um, The Farewell is uh, written by Wang Wei. Uh, This starts sparely and atmospherically, like the Mahler. Um, and there's wild laughing from the soprano between the two poems, so that you kind of know one's ending and one's uh, and the next one's going to begin It's pretty interesting uh the impressionistic poem was rendered with more narrative by the German translator in the Mahler setting here it doesn't it's more kind of like images uh some Chinese percussion appears at the end of this work after the vocals are finished. it slowly quietens, and the piece is over this piece by the way does use Chinese percussion in certain movements. So it really does go into a completely Chinese mode. Um, My thoughts about this album? I'd say it's a curiosity more than anything else, although I'm kind of interested in hearing more of Ye's music. Um, I'd like to know kind of what he's about in in other, you know, in general, because we only heard this one work. I enjoyed hearing the Chinese poems set in their original language by a Chinese composer, and I think people who speak Chinese are in for a treat with this recording. I just kind of wish I spoke it <laughs> while I was trying to, you know, the funny thing is I know a little bit of Japanese and Russ, Russ knows a lot of it, but, um, I was waiting for you know, those, um, what the own pronunciations, cause he can kind of make out certain of these, cause we know a bit of Japanese. So they use the same, uh, kanji, the, the, the characters and you can, to find my place in the text, I'd wait for that one that I sort of knew <laughs> what the sound was. And then I said, Oh, there it is. And I'd kind of listen to how it was sung. Anyway, what do you got?
0: Yeah, the I I felt a similar thing towards the Mahler performance. Uh, I actually was impressed by the the playing of the orchestra. Me too. Yeah. It was sort of more on a sort of parts and um, you know sort of smaller level uh, type of thing. I I felt that you know the execution technically and then uh, sort of you know individual sections uh, were really impressive, uh, really nice playing. But uh, the overall approach, like I said, was sort of not very Mahler-like. Uh, it was
1: more local rather yeah. than so, grand, so, you know? Yeah, the,
0: yeah. On a micro level, I thought the the playing was really uh, fabulous. And I was drawn into sort of specific parts and the orchestral sound and performance. Um, but yeah, the overall exposition of it maybe left me, uh, uh, wanting something else. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. Uh, nevertheless, in the Mahler performance, the, the, I I still don't know quite what to make of this work. Um, like you say, as a curiosity, it was interesting to listen to. Um, and, uh, I mean, being sung in Chinese, uh, right. I did study a few years of Chinese. uh oh, not, wow. that it, not that it helped Hey, I kind of envy you. <laughs> with, <laughs> I want
1: to speak those languages.
0: With uh, this piece so much. I mean, looking at the text, I could uh, get out some of it. But just the novelty of listening to something sung in Chinese in you know classical repertoire was kind of uh, interesting. And there's sort of uh, the Chinese qualities that he brings in, I mean, overall it's, you know, it's more of a Western music quality, but there are certain, uh, definite sort of Chinese characteristics that he does bring in at certain points. Yeah. They're mostly
1: uh, in the form of percussion. Yeah. Mostly kind of familiar sort of percussion. If you've heard any excerpts from Beijing opera, you're probably familiar with them.
0: Um, so I, I, I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't, uh, that much, Emotionally drawn in uh, to right. the work or the performance, uh, but it it, it helped my interest trying to see you know how the you know the same sort of text would be reinterpreted uh, right. with their sort of native Chinese. So you got kind of the a, a mirror image, but it wasn't a real mirror. I mean, right. it, it's a mirror, but with a different sort of a projection yeah of of that and and so as a concept yeah that's kind of um uh, uh, an it's interesting bold. study yeah, it's a uh, bold concept yeah it's a bold album. concept um yeah. but uh what what i can make of it maybe i need to listen to it more uh, i need to hear to more y- that of that
1: ye ye or ye it's it's spelled y e so i'm guessing yeah but ye, um yeah i think so y would be y i i think yeah. I, I don't know how they render this in, in Xiao you know, gong ye. yeah
0: i don't know about the tone of it but uh, yeah, so
1: well, you would know better than me. So, what do you think? Yeah, uh, or you, yeah, you're just
0: seeing it the way that it's written on the cover, I, I'm not really sure. I think it's yeah, though.
1: And, okay, I would have to see uh, the yeah. kanji. I guess right. We
0: knew we knew that. Uh, we yeah, know. maybe see what it, what the inflection is supposed to be. But right. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's an interesting. Uh, <laughs> they contrast put all the text in
1: Chinese, guy. but they didn't put his name in Chinese. <laughs> no, yeah. in the Booklet. <laughs> so, Why do, they do hard, that?
0: Hard to know what's uh, <laughs> you know what's what. The, but uh, yeah, um, Mahler and the original Chinese, uh, it's an interesting concept. Uh, someone else could probably expound upon that in greater detail. Uh, yeah, maybe we need a Chinese uh, music scholar to uh, compare the two.
1: I'd be curious to know what Chinese uh, listeners think of this work, because they're going to be a little closer to it if they speak the language, of course. But I wonder, I would wonder how well the music would affect them as well.
0: Yeah, we could ask our listeners, but I think we're banned in China or something. I don't,
1: um, no, there are no Chinese listeners. Are, I
0: think we've had like two would think downloads would, would from be, China. Though. You would think, yeah, so, you would think there would
1: be. There' big. There's a big Western classical audience there. It's yeah, kind of, they have I this orchestra, a, you know, the Shanghai it's an orchestra access I mean. thing. Yeah, so. yeah, it's an access thing. Yeah. I don't know. We're in India, though. I don't know. Yeah. Go figure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but um, we're, we yeah, actually, anyway. we're
1: actually on Indian. Um, cir- um what do they? What would you call them? Uh, host sites, it's, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, they've got their own thing going there, so we're in there yeah. anyway. I, I think China I was impressed does too. We just, just don't the, know what it is. Yeah. I was impressed with the Shanghai Symphony Orchestra. Uh, anyway, yeah. so um, wouldn't yeah. I
1: hear more of them? And I want to hear more of Ye's music. I want to, I'm gonna, we're gonna do him again yeah. because I want to hear him in in like his normal. Yeah, I'd be interested to see a program that he came up with. You know what I mean?
0: If he. Mm. If he, you know, if he, sw- I don't want to say swing, well, I'll save swing for my jazz section, but if he normally okay. leans more towards a Western thing, or if he was influenced that way because of Mahler's adaptations of these poems, or mm. if his normal, uh, or I don't want to say normal, but uh, other works incorporate more sort of Chinese musical influences or more Western influences uh, it would be interesting to know so uh, I'd be willing to check out some more of his other compositions
1: yeah I feel like when they juxtapose like you know when you hear like Chinese percussion and then you hear like Western like type strings they don't really meld into each other they're always sort of very separate things yeah. I, I don't really feel like they go very well yeah. I don't know.
0: it's one of those things yeah we'll see yeah anyway maybe we'll hear more we'll hear more, more, we'll
1: hear more. we will there, there is There, in fact a another album of his uh, music out and i'll check it out eventually so maybe we'll all talk right. about that is it jazz time it is jazz time
0: all right okay yeah so this... it
1: took a took a long time to get here
0: huh? <laughs> here we are the theme uh <laughs> as i've organized I've got lots of things in the wings uh and one of the things I have a lot of is trumpet releases. Uh, I've yeah. got enough to do like three episodes of just trumpet. Yeah, but, this is uh, something
1: Russ. I have to say, always has a, a lot of being a trumpeter himself. <laughs> so, a, I think uh, my my instrument is basically the piano, so I always like hearing the piano too. Got, and even in jazz, I don't play jazz piano though.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of everything uh, yeah. stacked up. Well, me too, I, of course. I noticed that. Um, I had a lot of trumpet releases so I said well I've got to get some of these out there and uh, especially one goes back to August so I said you know we want to keep things as recent as possible so the theme is uh, trumpet players and we're going to start uh, young and fresh uh, here young and fresh young and fresh and that's with a young Scottish trumpeter Sean Gibbs uh, with his debut uh, recording on the Ubuntu label when can I see you again Mm. Uh, and so Ubuntu uh, just signed uh, Sean Gibbs and uh, he is a uh, trumpeter but uh, also a composer arranger hailing from Edinburgh and uh, he grew up playing uh, with some ensembles uh, Tommy Smith Youth Orchestra uh, National Youth Orchestra of Scotland uh, and uh he finished his course there and while he was uh, there he had some uh interaction with some uh, great players uh Kenny Garrett Maria Schneider uh, Joe Lovano Dave Holland and others and uh, now he's wow, residing he met a lot of my favorites there. Yeah, he's in <laughs> London and he's uh in demand across the UK and abroad uh He's a member of the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra, and so he's had a chance to perform with uh, Kurt Elling, Kenny Washington, Martin Taylor, great guitarist, uh, Koto Ozone, and others. And so here he is on his own. And I have to say, this is a really fine debut. It's a little bit short in length, but that's fine. Gives us uh, hoping to listen to more. Uh, I think uh, some of the uh, compositions, as we'll hear a lot, in all styles of music are kind of, uh, uh, Corona pandemic inspired, uh, things as musicians were sort of left wondering when they're going to work again and, uh, what's, uh, going to come out in the music world from this. So they're introspective, but I have to say that Gibbs's, uh, compositions are very positive and uplifting, uh, in character. And he's a fine, uh, trumpet player. And so we're going to start out with, uh, his, uh, freshness here so we've got gibbs on trumpet uh on uh tenor saxophone with him riley stone lonergan on piano rob brockway bass is handled by callum gorelay and Jay davis on drums all compositions by sean gibbs Uh, and we start out his recording with a tune called internal conflict Mm. Hmm. it sounds menacing but uh by the title uh, but that
1: fun that funky groove doesn't uh yeah. give us any sense s- of s- some really nice oh.
0: uh, unison horn lines yeah. with a bluesy flavor uh and uh those are played across a real syncopated piano vamp uh there's a rhythm section change up in the uh, b section of the melody uh makes a nice contrast before it goes back to the vamp uh, gib takes the first solo you get a sense of his uh nice agility on the trumpet Uh, And then uh, you get a sample of Stone Lonergan's tenor sound, uh, nice rooted in traditionalism here. Uh, There's a lot of nice drum work underneath that uh, by Davis here, when they return to the melody, so a nice uh, first composition. Uh, All the tunes here are really rooted in the post-bop tradition with a a kind of bluesy uh, thread tied through them. Yeah, uh, I wanted to mention.
1: I wanted to mention the trumpet solo in the uh, opening, Prisoner mm. of Conflict. He plays. You, you talked about bop, yeah, exactly. But he he plays in a different time to like the the orchestra. Like he's kind of almost against them. I thought yeah. that was really interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. nice rhythmic It kind sounds. of threw me a little bit. When was, I was like, oh, what's?" Yeah, just trying to work it all out.
0: Uh, track two is called Happy Hour, and uh, right from the beginning, you get a happy piano vamp uh, for the intro. Uh, The horns stab in with a perky sounding line that has some nice spaces included. Uh, They shift from unison lines to harmonies when the beat changes up to a more uh, Latin feel in the middle section of the melody. And then the same alternating pattern keeps up for the solos. Um, So you've got that uh, Latin uh, switch off with the rhythm that we've featured a lot in jazz. Gibbs is up first for the solo. Again, uh, his melodies fit the uplifting chord changes to this tune, uh, as does the more relaxed solo of uh, Stone Lonergan uh, following on sax. Uh, Brockboy takes a piano solo, some nice uh, syncopated left-hand work underneath his lines, and uh, good locking in of the bass and drums uh, tightly as the groove changes up, and then after uh, the solos, the trumpet and sax trade off uh, after the melody restatement, and this is a happy-sounding tune indeed. Uh, yeah. makes you want to get right up to the bar after work well uh, that's why they're
1: happy they yeah, happy yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's happy
0: hour drinks are cheap uh three is a tune called mary and uh, sex sits out on this one which is a pretty ballad uh with a, a good melodic movement that shows off gibbs uh rich tone uh Gourlay is first up to solo on bass and davis stirs the pot with nice brush work on the drums uh Gibbs is next, and he keeps it very melodic. Uh, his uh, solo is nicely placed uh, accents that show a really good sense of swing. Uh, so, uh, nice ballad tune here. Fourth, the Grand Parade. Um, this is like a ABA form tune with alternating pattern uh, patterns that riff uh, that lead into like a heavy swing section in the A pattern, uh, then. Cons- a con- kind of continued swing through the B section. It's uh, reminiscent of these kind of like 60s post-bop tunes. Uh, Stone Lonergan is up first on tenor, a solo, then Gibbs. Uh, and here, his uh, influences come out, I think. Uh, the articulation you'll hear in Gibbs' solo here is really uh, Lee Morgan uh, type uh, in his lines. I haven't heard anyone uh, with this kind of uh, Morgan-influenced uh, kind of articulation in a while. So I think uh, it's really telling uh, in, in that sense. Uh, Brockway's up next on piano, and on the Melody Return, they uh, alternate the riff section with drum solo spots for Davis. Uh, and it's well done right in the uh, post-bop tradition. Uh, so nice tune here. Uh, number five is called That's Your Lot, it's got a slinky melody with a bossa-type beat. Uh, the contrast of melody and sections is nice uh, with the ending reaching happy-sounding chord sequences. Mm. Um, Brockway takes the first solo on piano, the relaxed feel. Gibbs is up next, and he takes a syncopated and bluesy uh, line solo, and then things quiet for another uh, gourlay bass solo, and he makes it melodic and bluesy uh, at the, all at the same time. Uh, Six, uh, Camper Down, this is a slower swinging tune with a melody that starts big and then breaks down into a division of long trumpet notes and syncopated sax uh, over breaks in the rhythm. Gibbs takes another solo, uh, and this one here shows his Lee Morgan kind of articulation influence, I felt. Uh, Stone Lonergan is next with a more legato kind of solo. Gourlay gets another bass solo here. Uh, and I noticed by this point, his solos are very melodic for a bass player. Uh, there's a nice pause uh, after all that right before the uh, melody returns. And uh, we end up only seven tracks here with the title track, uh, When Can I See You Again? And this is a really nice uh, composition. It's kind of a happy R&B gospel feel to it. Uh, the trumpet and sax are harmonized over long bass notes. Uh, The piano and sax have the trailing bluesy riff to the trumpet's kind of earnest call to meet someone again. Maybe this is kind of uh, Hmm. pandemic-inspired. It's a very catchy uh, melodic writing in this tune. Uh, And on the sax, uh, Stone Lonergan gives a nice R&B-fused solo. Uh, Gibbs is kind of puckish and fun in his solo. And uh, Brockway takes it away on the piano in his as well. So I thought uh, this is a fine debut recording. Uh, It's really soaked in the post-bop tradition. Um, And so Gibbs shows really great trumpet playing skills. Uh, He's influenced by the greats. uh, And his writing and arranging is excellent too. His tunes uh, overall create an uplifting atmosphere. Normally I would say when uh, someone makes a debut recording, I want to hear at least one or two standards uh, in there uh, before you go off on your own compositions. But I thought, uh, in his case, I wouldn't hold that against as a criticism since his uh, overall concept is very much traditionally steeped, uh, and uh, he shows uh, his influence as well. Overall, in the program, it's short, but uh, he generously shares the spotlight with his sidemen, and uh, he's got a competent rhythm section here that locks and grooves uh, well together. Uh, So I thought it's a fine first effort and a really enjoyable uh, recording that will put you in a good mood. uh, Hmm. That's exactly what I said. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what I said. I said uh, I came uh, away from this with a really positive vibe and uh, I especially like the pianist on this record uh, <laughs> I said yeah. that his playing sounds like sunshine I kept using the word sunny to describe <laughs> yeah. his to uh, describe his playing so I, he's someone I'd, I'd kind of like to hear him um, on his own and see, see what, see what hmm. he does you know so yeah. I was, I, he really kind of drew me in
0: yeah, sunshine is not something you'd normally associate with, like you know, Scotland or London. <laughs> Maybe that's matter. why, but uh,
1: he's thinking of another place. Maybe that's why yeah. he learned the piano in the first place. You don't know.
0: But uh, yeah, overall, a very happy sounding album, uh, and I like the energy from Gibbs uh, in his ah, young people, huh? Yeah, in his composition. I had, I had energy once. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I still have energy, but it's not all positive. <laughs> uh, there's that too. oh boy alright so that's the, the newcomer. happy newcomer yeah and uh, now we're going to move on to some more veteran players here hmm. uh, the next album is uh, by a trumpeter who is uh, not a newcomer and probably should be uh, better well known and that's why we'll talk about him a bit here uh, Alex Norris and uh his new release, uh, Fleet from the Heat. This is on Steeplechase. Um, He's a New York-based trumpet player who's played in all sorts of combinations, big bands, and uh, as a sideman with lots of uh, other groups. Uh, He's here on this uh, new recording with uh, tenor saxophonist Ari Ambrose, pianist Jeremy Menezia, uh, Paul Gill on bass, and Brian Floody on drums, and uh, we'll switch to a little bit more of a modern kind of uh, feel and idea. Not quite as uh, upbeat as Gibbs, but some really interesting tunes here. And we, uh, on Gibbs's uh, recording, we save the title track till last. Here it's up front, uh, so we start right out with Fleet from the Heat. It's a hard bop tune with a busy bass. Uh, line going through it. Uh, Norris comes out of the solo right from the gate. And uh, you'll see he has got uh, competent trumpet playing skills with some great articulation. He uses intervals well in all of his solos uh, here, but he does so fluidly. So rather than playing uh, scale-like lines, uh, he's a player who incorporates uh, intervals in uh, in his solos, uh, but he does so really smoothly. Uh, Ambrose has a tenor solo. Uh, Here he features some repeated note figures that build into swinging lines, uh, and he reaches up in the upper register uh, for a bit. Uh, Manesio's solo has a light touch in his right hand, uh, and then he gets a little bit more forceful as he goes along. Uh, When they get to the end of the solos, the horns and piano trade off with uh, Floody on drums before we turn to the uh, melody head, and the sax plays on a bit uh, before the rhythm section takes it out. Uh, I'm wondering on the genesis of uh, some of these uh, tune names. <laughs> they're pretty funny. Oh, they really they're called... are funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No fair, it's mine. Um, somebody took something of yours. Uh, this has got a melody with a kind of repeating question and answer. Uh, at the beginning section. Uh, Norris solo's first, uh, I think he's over on flugelhorn here. Uh, his solo has a unique interval, leaps in the lines, uh, but he breezes through them slow, smoothly. Uh, Ambrose gets a little growl in his sax solo, and then Monesia takes a turn on piano, uh, mixing in a lot of syncopated chords with his lines, and uh, at the end, Floody gets a little bit of drum time over some vamping. Uh, this is kind of a... Uh, Fun tune here. Number three is uh, <laughs> another great what title. What normal? Question mark. Yeah, maybe that's uh, questioning the so-called new normal. Um, right. This has got a, a marchy kind of even rhythm in the horns uh, that flows into Norris's swinging solo, which features some nice phrasing and some half valve effects with varied articulation. Uh, Ambrose picks up on. Norris's final trill in the solo and uh, comes through with a smooth sax solo. It gets more bite as it builds into uh, in uh, kind of uh, low and high registers. Maneja's piano solo gets both bluesy and exploratory uh, with harmony or, uh, harmonic kind of uh, ideas. And then it um, uh, gives a quiet but rhythmic bass solo here as well. Uh, four, we've got the uh, kind of combination of terms in uh, quarantine, pandemic, <laughs> <laughs> quarantine and yeah, pandemic, and or quarantine and We starts off with a dissonant piano riff that opens to halting horn lines, uh, and here he's using the harmon muted uh, trumpet uh, in this tune. Amnesia is up first with an interesting solo that's based around kind of a modulating scale figure. Uh, Ambrose has a slinky solo and then uh, Norris keeps the harmon mute in for a kind of agile trumpet solo uh, again using a lot of intervals in his lines and uh, five is a ballad for 2020. Uh, this is, uh, I think he switches over to flugelhorn here. There's a nice lush tone for the ballad. Uh, the sax sits out. It's very pretty, but it's kind of interesting. There's a rising bass figure that's also doubled by the piano at the end of the phrase that kind of introduces a sense of a worry for contrast of the pretty melody. So when they get to the end of each phrase, you'll if you listen, you'll hear that kind of... Uh, rising Mm. bass phrase it's a it's a bit of like maybe doubt or something uh norris phrases smoothly uh, leaving just the right amount of space between his statements um has a nice piano solo it starts with a wash of notes then he has some uh lovely runs and trills Uh, six another great title dude where's my deli oh you must be from new york (laughs) yeah um this is a funky uh beat tune with some snaking horn lines it's got the same kind of beat feel as uh lee morgan's sidewinder uh, if you know that tune however it introduces some more dissonance into there uh ambrose starts out and uh ends his solo with kind of a bluesy crying riffs uh norris explores the harmonies in his solos uh, you can really hear uh freddie hubbard woody shaw influence uh in what he does here it's a bit more uh modern uh, kind of concept. And uh, Manasia gets some funkiness in his solo too. Uh, this uh, tune has interesting chord changes and a kind of a unique uh, melody length in the phrases. Uh, so. I don't know what happened to his <laughs> deli, but uh, it uh, made a good tune.
1: I think, they, I think they're closing down because of the pandemic. Yeah, it probably, could have been. You know, his,
0: his deli closed down. That, yeah. that
1: that is sad. Having grown up in New York, I can tell yeah. you. Yeah, I miss those giant deli sandwiches.
0: Uh, what do they call it? Uh, the Dagwood. New, yeah, yeah. There's a new restaurant term, uh, oh. ghost kitchens or something. It's like oh. these restaurants that don't. You know, they they might have like four restaurant names. and uh, placards but it's like all the same guys cooking in one kitchen so they're making pizzas (laughs) Mexican food and French all in the same kitchen (laughs) and Uber Eats is just picking them up you know based on people's orders or something so yeah that's interesting I don't know some real talent to those kitchens I can tell you they're doing all that Uh, Seven here is called Holiday Blues. This is an interesting tune. It's got some different sections in it. Uh, The first is over kind of open chiming piano chords. And there's an ominous bass figure uh, in the final section. Uh, The solos all swing along with a mix of bluesy phrases and expanded harmonies. Uh, Gil gets an intriguing bass solo here on this tune uh, that's both uh, melodic and rhythmically complex. Track eight is called The Untamed Land. Yeah. It's a cool theme. It's got accented, unison, descending horn lines that are contrasted with the swinging section. Uh, it ends in kind of a fermata, uh, so it's a slight hold on that on a note. But then the bass walks out of that swinging, and then it goes right into Norris's uh, solo. Uh, it's got a, some real advanced harmonic ideas again that allude to uh, Woody Shaw's kind of concepts um, they return to the last descending line and formata again and then the bass walk out uh, for each of the solos which is yeah. a really cool kind of compositional <laughs> Uh, interlude uh, to put in. I did in enjoy there. that, Kennedy. Kind of yeah, cool, so yeah. it's almost
1: like somebody's coming out introducing, you know, right. like the, like the MC, a, the know, bass is ba, like ba, the MC. Ba, ba,
0: yeah. And then doo, 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 the bass walks in, right? So right. that's what you get here. Um, yeah. Ambrose goes next. He's got some nice harmonic explorations, uh, some wailing in his solo. Uh, Munition's solo is complex on um, piano, has a lot of uh, modulating figures. Uh, he moves around uh, with ease. And then finally, Floody gets some drum space uh, here uh, before they go through and give you the whole theme again. Uh, So uh, it's kind of a nice um, structural concept to give you that little uh, interlude with a part of the theme.
1: Yeah, I want to give the uh, pianist a shout-out on this album, too, by the hmm. way, uh, because my ear kept being drawn to him. I really did like his his playing. He's got a lot of... um, you know, a lot of um, traditional jazz ideas, a beautiful sound. He's even got a bit of um this, these Debussy kind of harmonies and sort of figuration in his playing at times as well. So I kept... Uh, yeah. I really uh, was waiting for his solos a lot of times. So I yeah. really enjoyed them.
0: But even, as you say, even his backing, his uh, harmonic yeah. uh, choices, the voicing mm-hmm. of the chords stands out. Right. And I think, you know, it, it seems like a small detail, oh, the pianist is going to voice the chord this way. But I think you know that gets into the soloist's ears and it influences mm-hmm. what they play too um right. so uh i think it's a nice choice by uh, norse to pick yeah. Uh the the uh,
1: chords the um you yeah, know the uh the, even the uh the weight of the uh you know the 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 volume that they're playing mm-hmm. those the comping those chords at too things yeah. like that it's just like a, a touch it really it sets like a whole feel yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh yeah, the piano uh, really helps in the concept of this whole album. Uh, number nine uh, is called Night Bus, which uh, this is, it's got a swingy melody uh, and harmonized long-tone horn lines. Norris yeah, plays I, th- quite... I thought of
1: that as the bus horn, actually. I wonder if uh, oh, he's really? thinking that there, yeah.
0: I didn't think you of know? that, but that's interesting. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, uh, Norris plays quite melodic ideas in his solo here. Uh, relaxed sense of swing and phrasing. Uh, When Ambrose comes in, he keeps the relaxed feel in his solo, but he has some flurries of notes and a few uh, biting articulation examples. Um, Manasian on the piano uh, mixes kind of loose phrases with some runs and accented chords then he adds some lower register kind of dissonant chords and spots for variety um so yeah i don't know what this was inspired by maybe t- taking the, the overnight bus on a trip to somewhere or something but uh i was
1: because i was thinking of um you know here in japan like if you if you had landed in um like Tokyo, and you had to get yeah. back into the Kansai area. You had to, you you had take, to take that the, cheap
0: overnight bus with all yeah, the weird were, characters. And, yeah. and with
1: the quarantine thing now, they're sort of requiring that you sort of, yeah. I don't know, get out of town in 24 hours. Or now it's even worse. You have to stay. You know, it's kind yeah. of, um, or get a ride yeah. home or something. The creatures you so, meet on the night bus or something. I um mm. I applied this to our own situation when I heard it. So. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's yeah. what you – it's the Business listener's, the listener's um, privilege, shall there we say. There were a few
0: times uh, mm. back in my university days when uh, I would come home from for break and then uh, go across the old New York State on the night bus. Right. And uh, I encountered some pretty strange characters. Yeah, they, <laughs> they like those on, night buses, boy. On stops no. along the way, yeah, all in right. uh, all those um, places along the way, uh, Utica, mm. Rochester, and uh, – Going out there,
1: yeah. America's got a lot of those kind of people, man. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Oh, no.
0: People that haunt the night. The night creatures on the night bus. And uh, finally, we're going to end up this album with... uh, With the the best title of all. Yeah, Grapple (laughs) with a Snapple. (laughs) uh, A play on the old Charlie Parker, uh, Scrapple from the Apple, uh, (laughs) referring to the... uh, tea drink here uh, this one uh, <laughs> tried <Trying> to <laughs> is, open it I kind of yeah I tried to open, open not this able uh, to... really tight uh, <laughs> thing of tea uh it's got some um, brisk swinging theme with chasing horn lines uh Manizian jumps right out of the gate with a swinging solo uh featuring lots of syncopated left hand chords uh Norris has a really agile solo some melodic surprises amid the hard swinging lines uh in contrast, Ambrose plays uh, rather softly to start up, but he gets up into the upper register soon after. And then the uh, trumpet and sax trade fours with the drums uh, for a bit uh, before things come to a close. So, uh, yeah, a nice effort here highlighting original compositions by Alex Norris. He's got uh, a really great uh, trumpet technique, mature. Improvisation style uh, influenced by uh, you know trumpet players like uh, Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw, but he's got his own thing going, uh, and he writes some nice composition. He's got a good uh, group here, uh, complementing mu- musicians. Uh, they groove well together, and Manasia's harmonic concept adds a lot to uh the inspiration for the individual soloists so uh, if you want to hear modern trumpet by a great player who probably doesn't get enough recognition although other musicians often pick him to perform in their groups check this out fleet from the heat by alex norris
1: yeah fleet from the heat grapple with the snap he's got that kind of
0: <laughs> yeah good a alliteration feeling t- in good his time. titles
1: yeah yeah. I'm I'd like to, it's kind of that rhyme. Yeah. I'd like to have a
0: <laughs> drink with them and hear the inspiration for yeah, all these kind that, of tunes. That would be They're worth kind of doing. Funny,
1: yeah. Between sets, Definitely. we can catch him one day yeah. here in Japan and, be great. and talk to them about that. Yeah, I like this album too. It was good. I um, Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. It was, it was a little more of a, an intellectual listen, which yeah. is always a good thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you really know your jazz, like I think you probably got a lot more out of this than I did. Yeah. I liked it a lot, but I, I mean, you know, because you were able to g- Pull out the things from the you know past players that he's um yeah yeah adding. it gives us a yeah. I
0: thought the most upbeat and you know positive fresh thing uh, but um, Norris is much a veteran uh, yeah. player so I thought uh, we'd go he's a little bit deep. darker maybe deeper <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. with that and uh, we we'll end up with uh, one of the modern trumpet masters uh, Mr yeah. Brian Lynch yeah um uh, uh, and you've probably uh, if you're a jazz fan, you probably know Brian Lynch, but anyways, a uh, Illinois born, uh, master trumpet player who came up through all the jazz ranks playing with Art Blakey and the jazz messengers, uh, around the New York scene in the eighties. When he came to New York, uh, I came to know him a little bit after, uh, in a more detailed way because he replaced, uh, Tom Harrell in Phil Wood's quintet in the 1990s. Oh. It was a big shoes to fill, uh, along that, uh, same time and from the 80s, uh, he had uh, played a lot through associations with uh people in the Latin music scene, Hector Lavoe, Eddie Palmieri, uh, in uh, New York scene. Uh, and so, uh, what is it, 2011 or 12? Uh, he released his own uh great Latin release, uh, Madero no. Latino. Uh, a Latin jazz interpretation on the music of Woody Shaw. And we right. both like that one. A, yeah. A lot. I
1: remember that we when I we, uh, came out, you yeah, know, that was a Grammy yeah. uh, nominee that year. I actually I think it won the Grammy that year.
0: I think it did. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I, uh, a real great uh, modern trumpet player with uh, aggressive, uh, uh, soloing style, uh, who's, uh, played with bright tone. Oh, uh, the great, really? the greats. And, uh, so here on his new, uh, project uh which is called uh songbook volume one bus stop serenade Uh, this is on uh, holistic music works Um, (laughs) the idea here is uh to uh, revisit his own original compositions that he's composed you know playing with various ensembles and groups over the years and uh so uh, what he says is that uh, i'll I'll just paraphrase uh, his quotes here but uh uh, he got attached to the tunes that he's written over the years and felt that uh, they would benefit uh, from, uh, like, new versions and form that would introduce them, you know, to contemporary listeners uh, that may have not heard them the first time around. And uh, so he he picked up uh, these original compositions of his own uh, with a, a group of players that... Uh, uh, you know he thought represented uh you know who could i uh, you know perform these in the best light with people he's played with before and uh so he's going to re-pre- uh, represent uh re present these here in a new format here and so um what's really cool uh about this approach this is another kind of mirror mirror uh yeah thing uh I got, think we're going to go
1: for that with our, for our title today. The title, right? yeah. thing going um,
0: on. So they, they had kind of a limited yeah. uh, time in the studio to uh, get these things done. And so what they did is they, they decided to, you know, play them through once to get the feel of the tune. And then they would take another take that was supposed to be the album take after they had, you know, had a run through, but, right. um, on uh, listening back and further analysis as you know often happens like uh, in jazz or any kind of music really like uh, uh, if you ever read about the recording sessions of uh, Gil Evans uh, he would always record the first impression of musicians uh, when they played a piece so he always wanted that first take regardless of whether it had mistakes or other kind of problems because he felt that that was going to be the best overall kind of uh performance uh even if it had mistakes because you know people would be emotionally experiencing that uh for for the first time and that would bring out you know the best in in the musicians uh and so i get that
1: i get that you know it's playing in bands you you just sort of um Yeah, it can be sloppy the first time, but you reach a peak, and then if you just keep doing it, it gets worse and worse. You you definitely
0: get diminishing returns. Uh, Whether the first is always the best, uh, you know, that's probably not true, but it could be. And uh, so apparently, uh, Brian Lynch, uh, comparing these uh, various, or just two takes of most of these tunes, he thought, you know, that some of the first takes uh, contain things that. you know, were as interesting or more interesting than the second takes, and he couldn't choose between all of them, so he decided do it's going to just release all of them. Yeah, uh, so we get them and, all here. Yeah, and so how he's done this is really uh, kind of creative and interesting. Uh, he's divided them into um, uh, two kind of uh, separates and separate sections that he calls the express route, which is generally the second take's and the shorter versions, but not completely so. Uh, mm. And then uh, a second grouping that's called the alternate route, which <laughs> uh, contains uh, mostly the take ones, but there's a few take twos in here, and those are the longer versions. And I guess, you know, the, when they were playing through the uh, longer versions, they sort of let things uh, go on longer, the solos and so forth, to get the, to let the players, you know, feel out the tunes and see what they wanted to do on them. Uh, but of course, then when you come back and you, you know, you listen to them uh, in the studio, you know, you compare solos and, and what forth the spontaneous nature of jazz, you realize, Oh, wow. Even when you listen to your own playing, if you've, you know, if you're a musician, you think well, wow. You know, sometimes you hear yourself, what, what, did, where did that come from? You know, right, yeah. uh, these ideas uh, come from out there. So I mean, you didn't want to choose between the two. So you get on this album, a really unique approach. They get the same music played twice, um, first and second take Uh, you know a lot of jazz releases have alternate takes sometimes multiple ones but now oftentimes uh, the musicians are just um, you know aiming multiple takes and then they're going to pick the best one so here it's just two takes each uh, which keeps it more limited and so you've got uh, a double copy of almost everything except for one tune which yes, is the pivot is point I don't know if it <laughs> okay. was a time where they were just really satisfied but mm. it, we'll get to that at the uh, bottom of the list um, right. anyway this is a really good um, experience for me because I've always liked uh, Lynch's trumpet playing and I know that he was uh, you know, a capable composer but I never really focused in on his composition style so I got to learn a few things uh, about uh, his composition style. Uh, one of which is that uh, he likes to incorporate a type of counterpoint into his uh, compositions which f- features a kind of contrasting bass line uh, that he must hear in his mind to his melodic lines and that's always like doubled. It's in the bass and in the left hand of the piano and that features a lot in uh, these compositions. Uh, and. He's got a lot of variety and style, and he also plays uh, tribute to uh, some jazz uh, masters of the trumpet uh, in here. Uh, so, uh, let's go through what he's got here. Uh, the Express route, the first section, uh, begins with a tune called 24-7. This has got weaving sax and trumpet lines uh, that go between unison phrases. Uh, there's alternating sections of straight and swinging time uh, here. Uh, That's highlighted by excellent bass patterns and uh, walking sections by uh, Boris Kozlov. Uh, bass player we've heard uh, a couple times here with uh, Art Hirahara, Dave Kikoski uh, and great interplay here between uh, Brian Lynch and uh, Jim Snedaro on alto saxophone. I should probably introduce the band uh, here. I think I got too excited and skipped that. So in addition to (laughs) uh, Lynch on trumpet and flugelhorn, we've got uh, Jim Snedaro on uh, alto saxophone uh, Orrin Evans uh, on piano uh, who we often hear on uh, Smoke uh, Sessions Records, and we did, uh, I think we covered one of his big band releases uh, here uh, recently. We've got uh, Boris Kozlov on bass and Donald Edwards on drums. Uh, and so uh, the first tune here uh, highlights uh, all the players and has some uh, great horn line uh, interplay between Lynch and Cinedero. Uh The second tune Affinique. This is a bossa beat tune. It's got really attractive horn lines uh, that stop and go, uh, and those are set over a bass line that has its own type of unique movement. Uh, It starts off with a very meaty Kozlov bass solo uh, Mm -hmm. that's uh, really cool. Uh, Very fluid and precise lynch solo here. Snodero is relatively more relaxed, but he picks out some individual notes to highlight, and uh, also features a nice Evans solo as well. So, Oren Evans is one of these kind of piano players who he's kind of, you know, uh, off off to the side of what you expect from piano players to play. He always picks sort of interesting, colored tones in his harmonies, and uh, he's you know he doesn't uh, really copy the kind of phrasings and things of other players so you never really know what he's going to do on uh, any kind of tune so I kind of like his sort of unpredictable nature uh, when it comes to solos uh, right. yeah, yeah. No, I feel the same way yeah <laughs> like a, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm like what was that all about and then sometimes like yeah, oh that was really cool you know it's like I, I think this one was like oh what's that all about <laughs> yeah, yeah a little <laughs> in, bit yeah in this piece yeah uh, right. The third tune is called "On the Dot." Uh, this has got a drum intro by Edwards uh, into really some hard swinging horn lines. Uh, the uh, melody includes a drum break as part of you know the uh, the writing phrases. Uh, it's got a really tight and swinging solo by Lynch uh, and Snidero swings melodically as well. Uh, Evans uh, has a actually a, a real focused solo here. Uh, and inside of that, the interplay with the bass and drums is really tight. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's selling, but the way the uh, drum and bass kind of inspire him is uh, important uh, in what he decides to play. Uh, track four, Bus Stop Serenade. Uh, this one is a medium swing tune. It's got attractive horn lines, and uh, that also has a kind of. Uh, bass answer phrases that are doubled in the left hand of the piano. So this is that kind of counterpoint I was talking about. This is the first tune where that uh, stands out. Uh, And I like how he he kind of uh, has this in his concept. You know, so you've got the standard line and usually when the horns are holding out a note, you'll hear that sort of rising or rising and falling bass counterpoint to that. Uh, uh, It's got... Really nice solos all around, sax, trumpet, and piano. Uh, Kozlov gets a good solo here. And in his bass solo, uh, he quotes a little bit of uh, If I Should Lose You. Uh, And then you you Mm. get that. So uh, he's such a great bass player. Uh, Lots of melodic ideas, but always uh, keeping uh, rhythmic time too. Uh, So his bass playing is really featured well in this album. Uh, Five is... uh, tune called Clairvoyance. It's a samba beat tune. Really nice horn arrangement on this one. Uh, It also has that integral answering bass line and also some intense and precise drumming by Edwards in the beginning and end sections that sandwich the kind of main melody theme. Uh, So when you hear the intro and then sort of the outro of the melody, you won't recognize it as a samba because the, the drumming is kind of heavy. But once that kicks in, and then in the solos, you've got a real kind of samba thing going. Evans is up first for a solo. Uh, there's a reprise of the melody uh, also, and then uh, Lynch solos. And there's no return to the melody between the trumpet and the sax solo by Snidero, Uh But they do return to that a little bit uh, before Kozlov gets a solo. And uh, then after they return to the melody for a final time, Edwards gets a little bit of a solo time over a chord vamp by Evans uh, before the horns return for one more shot to the end. Uh, Track six. Oh, go ahead.
1: I thought Kozlov had a lot of uh, room in this uh, particular piece to um, solo. He gets a long solo. It's all really great. It starts with this kind of funky walking bass thing.
0: It's really cool. He he seems to be able to fit like all these things in, in, even in a short amount of time. He's got like these cool rhythmic ideas, uh, very melodic for yeah. a bass player and uh, exciting yeah yeah. Also,
1: yeah I also wanted to point out about this the name of this piece Clairvoyance it's spelled uh, C-L-A-I-R-E so it's kind of a little yeah. pun on the girl's name Claire yeah. you know Clairvoyance I thought That's that was really cute and allude to some chick some chick lady I'm sorry yeah, <laughs> lady I'm sorry how dare I <laughs> how dare you <laughs> uh,
0: oh, well. are there any ladies listening by this point if you are yeah. Adult music podcast at gmail.com we're, I we're adults here yeah. send us a <laughs>
1: message I think, I think we're adult music because adults listen to us not because we're adults maybe they do if they're not if they're, if
0: they're still awake by this point yeah uh, but you should be awake for the next tune because yeah uh,
1: well it'll wake you up anyway
0: dedicated to a master of trumpet uh, modern jazz trumpet Woody Shaw uh, this is a Shaw inspired melody uh, with this those kind of Uh, Intervals, uh, fourths, and whatnot that Woody Shell would play. Uh, It's got a driving beat. Uh, The beginning section has an answering bass line again over a Latin straight beat, and then the second section uh, switches to a swinging uh, rhythmic uh, pattern that the horns are featured over, uh, and that alternating swing and straight Latin rhythm uh, also uh, goes through the solos, which often inspires, uh, the player, uh, as the tempo switches to, uh, push it along. Uh, Lynch is really on fire with the solo here. Snare keeps that going, uh, with the burning. Great drumming by Edwards, uh, as he mixes up the rhythms between the swing and the complicated straight patterns. Uh, Evans has a really, int- uh, intense solo here too. Um, and then they trade, uh, off patterns with the drums uh, between the soloists. And uh, when they come to the exchanges, uh, when it comes to Evan's turn, he has this really intense, like two handed rhythmic tirade in one of his exchanges, like, <laughs> and he's just like, uh, uh, rips up the keyboard. Uh, you're not really ready for it, but it's kind of cool uh, on this yeah. turn.
1: I sort of mention Evan's. Uh, not Evans. Um, Lynch. He, every track I've ever heard of him, I haven't really heard everything. He's always on fire. He just sounds. He's really aggressive and just sounds yeah. like this is big, bright tone all the time. He's really enjoyable to listen to. I just got sucked in right away. Yeah, yeah. And and this very long album really wasn't any difficulty to get through. No, really,
0: you know. He's um, he's he's like a full bore, straight on trumpet player with. Him massive technique and good concepts and uh, yeah. also sort of limitless uh, creativity. Uh, he uh, Right, yeah. He does seem to just never yeah. run out of ideas. Really fantastic. Um, next track is called Before the First Cup. Uh, this one starts with a loping le- uh, bass line that's doubled with uh, piano, uh, and it starts out it's a waltz uh, tune. The horns dance in. Kozlov gets the first solo on this one. Then uh, Lynch is coming in here. I think he's on flugelhorn, a uh, kind of lyrical sound. Uh, Snidero comes in. He's got a laid-back solo to match the waltzing mood. Uh, Evans has a uh, solo here as well. Uh, Edwards' uh, fills and textures stand out throughout uh, with the waltz rhythm. Uh, and then at the end, Lynch and weave lines together in the outro before they join uh, back in on a riff. So we've got a little waltzing contrast here. Uh, track eight is uh, another dedication uh, to uh, kind of an unsung great trumpet player, Charles Tolliver, uh, another fine po- post-bop uh, jazz trumpeter. It's a really cool tune. It starts out with this stately horn riff. Uh, it's almost like an Egyptian fanfare uh, and it's played over this kind of open fifth, like it's a like F F and C, boom, in the mm-hmm. uh, piano in the left hand. Uh, it sounds kind of imposing. Uh, so that's sort of the opening. Then it moves to a more kind of bluesy section in the middle of the melody, and then it hits that riff again. Um, and they'll bring the riff back again between the solos, you know, as sort of a transition, uh, which is kind of a cool compositional uh, feature. It gives you a little kind of... Uh, reset in the solos lynch has a real ripping solo here uh <laughs> accented standout notes bluesy phrases uh and then everyone solos here evans Kozlov, edwards uh they they d- dig on the groove uh to push him along uh you know, are, are, are in the so in lynch's solo rather um it's it, it's one of these places where that intensity of the swing really uh picks up and comes back there a uh, sonadero gets uh some outside squawks and uh, <laughs> normally he, you know, he's uh he's a great player, but he's, you know, he's, he's not, um, sort of, uh, uh emotionally let off, but here he, he sort of goes out into a kind of, a a, uh, an outside, uh, the harmony kind of, uh, excursion, which yeah. is cool. And then, uh, he comes back in and brings it to a bluesy focus. Uh, and then, um, after his solo, it's sort of... Uh, the, the riff comes back, and then the tune sort of dissolves. Uh, and, you know, the that swing drive and everything disappears, and it gets kind of like, you know, uh, amorphous, which is good for Evans, because he likes that kind of, you know, out there thing. And then uh, that's the start of his solo, but he, he really pulls it back in and gets... This like really cool groove going uh, with some accented chords uh, in his lines. And so it's sort of like a reset of the tune uh, before they uh, finish out his solo and come back. Uh, so yeah, uh, if you haven't heard uh, Charles Tolliver on trumpet, uh, he doesn't get enough attention, uh, but a fine trumpeter on his own. And it's nice that Lynch uh, pays him a tribute here. Um, and then the last tune in uh, the first section of the express route uh, is sort of the pivot and this is called uh, Keep Your Circle Small and you only hear this once on the album. It's a hard driving tune with cool horn lines. Uh, also features a bass, uh double bass line piano and the bass that's a counterpoint uh, to the melody. Uh, Lynch has an uplifting solo, lots of rhythmic variations. Snidero uh, has uh, inspired solo too and uh, Evans has got a
1: comparatively
0: <laughs> uh, rhythmically interesting solo here right. that Again, ends in some unexpected. unexpected intervals it's yeah. like ding, ding 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 and then it's out it's like whoa uh, what odd accents there? odd twist to the melody there's yeah. a lot in there yeah, yeah. he's he's a player Play it, that um, always keeps showing his toes and so that's the first section and then the remainder of the album or I guess on CD it's a, a second disc is called the alternate route uh, and so here you get uh the f- mostly the first takes but they're in a different order so track 10 you're going to get the first take of on the dot uh track 11 is charles tolliver take take 1 track 12 before the first cup take 1 track 13 woody shaw think, take, take 1
1: b- before the first cup take
0: 2 i think is it
1: i think so yeah
0: that's uh, i, I, I have can to check again one, but, uh, i'm not sure anyway <laughs> yeah, anyway uh, then we got Woody Shaw, take one, Clairvoyance, take two, uh, yeah. Bust Stop Serenade, take one, uh, EFNIC, take one, 7 take one. Now, uh, I think EFNIC
1: is also take two is it? I've got here. Hmm.
0: This one I can probably check.
1: Let me see. Without playing it, I kind of, because I only got these on Deezer, so I kind of.
0: Yeah. I copied this, uh, from the, uh.
1: They, I mean Deezer could be Deezer listings could be wrong Elfinique's take two is, is absolutely take two
0: sometimes the Deezer okay, ones you uh, the, the ordering right is oh. okay. Okay. sometimes the ordering is different I got these from uh, Sound in Depth magazine okay. yeah so anyway well that's um, what Deezer said anyway most the, one of I the, said. the second okay. one is uh, take one <clears throat> tracks but there are some uh, take two where, where he chose to take one for the first uh, choice but uh, in general the take one tracks are longer because they were you know having a first playthrough and uh, letting uh, the musicians feel out a little bit more um, so what you'll get is uh, some more extended solos maybe some more adventurous things you can compare uh, them directly if you want um, I would at least suggest uh, checking out the uh, Woody Shaw original take uh, this right. one is over 10 minutes long but uh not that the solo on take two by Lynch is uh, shabby in any way, but the, the take one one is really different yeah, in true. character. Uh, it's, it's kind of a really smoking extended solo. And the Evans solo on the take one is really kind of uh, keeping that inspired move. Uh, so yeah, uh, you got to, choice here to hear all of the uh different takes here most of the yeah. ones on the alternate route are a little bit more extended uh maybe not as yeah. polished but sometimes they contain some real creative gems uh you know if musicians are thinking oh, i'm i can do anything i want or you know this is the final take that's going to on the album just that knowledge can influence your decision on how conservative right. or adventurous you're going to be uh on that and you know in the old days at least here we've got full takes but in uh, modern recording uh a lot of jazz comes off uh stilted and uh you know not so spontaneous sounding because uh when things are recorded in isolation in the studio the solos can overdub their parts uh mm-hmm. in some recordings and so you know on the playback they'll say oh i flubbed that note or that's not what i want to do let me record this again and so much in the same approach as a pop recording will be, the soloist can go back and over double line, you know, reaching technical perfection, but leaving out that sort of continuity and then the interplay you get among uh, the musicians. So I think, in my opinion, you know, the the most exciting and spontaneous kind of uh, jazz things are when uh, warts and all the yeah. whole take is preserved. And, and now that's what makes most of the great recordings of the 50s and 60s good. The, you know, the, not only were, was everything recorded live, um, but you've got a limited number of microphones. so You've got bleed through of the musicians uh, coming right. through the different mics. So you've got this more full sort of soundstage. And it was recorded as was. Maybe they did you know up to five six takes of each tune and they picked the best one there was always some imperfection in there but they picked the one that had the overall best character of uh, spontaneity and groove rather than worrying about you know any technical mistakes uh so here uh, yeah, we've even got comp- even in a, i was to say even in a
1: jazz group um, recording in isolation while well, well, the track is playing and you're like dubbing you're playing your solo over the th- this, even that takes a lot of life away from yeah, yeah. Uh, the there's performance there's no interplay you know, I mean yeah. you know, the bass that-
0: player hears what you're playing and he changes yeah. the chord and he's gonna do this the drummer hears your rhythms and he's gonna change up where his accents are right. um, there's more of a st- chance for spontaneity as spontaneity, well spontaneity you know? yeah. yeah and so I like uh, you know at least this approach here they're complete takes they took them all down And uh, because the level of musicianship is so high here, uh, even these first takes are just amazing. Uh, Mm. There's no mistakes here. Um, (laughs) It's just a matter of, you know, did they have the direction and the arc of what they wanted in development of their solos or whatnot. Uh, And even where maybe they may, on the longer tracks, uh, not be as cohesive. There's some element of that solo that's a little bit different and a little bit more experimental that was worth preserving, and so you get both here. And uh, you probably don't want to listen to you know all of them back to back, but uh, <laughs> you know maybe compare tracks on a subsequent listen and see what's different, or take the alternate route and uh, see if that's more satisfying and uh, explorative. Uh, in any case, uh, it's a nice feature for uh, Lynch's uh, work as a composer, all in one place. And uh, another example of his masterful trumpet playing, and he's in the company of uh, great musicians. You've got, uh, you know, Cine- competent alto playing uh, that matches uh, Lynch's inspiration. His solos are good. Uh, Kozlov's bass is rock solid and inventive. Edwards' drums is great, and Evans uh, has that unique touch and unexpectedness uh, in a harmony and melodic directions that he brings to a recording session. So a good group and uh, a nice concept. Uh, this is a album uh, it's a mirror image of the tunes that will need multiple listeners to uh get the most out of what's here yeah i
1: uh yeah great just the just the the whole difference between the musicians was really what made this really yeah. great i I personally thought that the the takes they used were they, they sounded brighter i just liked they were more in the pocket too the yeah. uh, the, yeah. the the takes on the uh the main route, or whatever that would mm-hmm. that this was called, but I did listen to the whole thing not all the way through, I heard it in parts, but right, right. um, yeah, it was um, it was interesting. I mean, you could spend a lot of time picking apart what the what, what was different about the solos and all, but um, I, I just liked yeah, just hearing these five guys together, it just seems like just five unlikely. I mean, if they were if if the sounds they were making were actual people, you wouldn't think they'd really. Like, like each other very much. But, right, um, right. Well, they wouldn't get along, but they really create something really extraordinary, yeah. Gary. Right?
0: I, yeah. I think that's, you know, this is um, Lynch's mm. pick of people that he's played with uh, on various um, uh, projects through his career. Right. And so I think he, he picked them for the unique aspects right. that they brought. Uh, and the unique the aspects
1: music. they have are really unique, even yeah, from each other, unique, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they create something of, magical
0: you know, yeah. I, I don't know what to make of Evans playing even though I've listened to him a lot in the last year uh, mm. he's always sort of surprises me um, right. um, you know Snid, Snidero is a real competent uh, uh, great player I, I know that uh, Mike LaDon is a big is a friend and a big fan of his playing too and okay. so I you know I, I know that he's uh, you know well respected and especially players want him as a side man and uh, I'm more and more uh, interested in Kozlov <laughs> as sort of this uh, kind of bass player who can do a lot even when he has a small window of opportunity to uh, get his ideas in there. Um, right. And he's really cool.
1: Yeah. And there it is. We are through with the podcast yeah. and I am completely healed from my cold. Oh, great. The Wonderful. tea and all the talking about music has made me feel energetic and... Younger and healthier
0: so, Mirror mirror on the wall Who's the healthiest Handsomest of them all It must be Mike yeah, over there yeah, yeah, yeah Maybe He's glowing We'll, we'll post glowing pictures of me
1: when, That's because I have The light shined on oh, me Oh yeah It's the light on your head That's right <laughs> It's the light on my On my bald head That's what that is
0: Yeah Yeah so I don't know um, I, I've got I could do two more episodes Of all trumpet recordings What should I do I don't know I don't know
1: Yeah I got some good Interesting stuff coming up Next week though I can tell you that Oh In- Including a double There's gonna be a double Cause of oh, okay Two releases came out The same year So I figured I may as well Do both of them Instead of choose one
0: <laughs> Alright Well I will match I will try to match so, And thing. next week
1: We have another Contemporary composer So I'm kinda happy We're getting a lot of uh, Contemporary music out there Because uh, classical music Is still being written And I want yeah, everybody To know that important. And to
0: listen Got to hear the new stuff as well as the old. Rediscovering the old, finding the best in the new. Yeah. Uh, and we're also going to rediscover
1: there. some old music that we never heard before last week, too, in the Baroque category. So that'll oh. be fun as well.
0: You see, that's the the real uh, usefulness to the listener of adult music. Uh, it's music for the mature mind, but how are you going to approach and scour all of these new releases, find out what to listen to? Uh, leave that to us. Uh, we'll give you at least six hours six to eight hours each week of things to listen to uh right. you can listen to us uh, describe it in excruciatingly uh detailed uh <laughs> analysis or well, or you, you can, can just, just go to the spotify and just go to turn spotify it on and see what you think and i, I kind of hope
1: a lot of people do that
0: you know i hope they do um yeah but um you yeah, know we're always looking for the best in uh, new recordings of old music new music rediscovered music forgotten music uh, all uh, in one place every week uh, right. so and we want um, you to
1: discover new things not just hear the same old things over and over yeah, yeah we've got to keep yeah.
0: expanding expanding our musical palette uh, but returning to the good things uh, at the same as well. time as yeah. yeah so this has been episode 36 of Adult Music a podcast with music for the mature mind we hope you've enjoyed everything again uh, please uh, do like, comment on whatever platform you're on. uh, Come over to Deezer to check out our playlist with all these tunes and albums in one place that you can uh, listen to all at once. You can also find the podcast there uh, or check us out on podbeam.com where all the links are sure to work and uh, you can uh, follow us there as well. And if you'd like to write to us directly we'd uh, appreciate to hear from you our contact address is adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com and we'll be back next week with episode 37 with contemporary classical music and well, some, yeah some <laughs> some and some old and some fresh jazz too so turn in and uh it'll all be podcast. magical It'll be magical for sure in episode 37 next week and we'll see you again next time.